Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. And thank you once again for coming to Bard's Logic Political Talk, part of the growing conservative conversation, and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. Now we'll hear a little bit from them later on in the show at the bottom of the hour. And definitely we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with the grassroots here uh, in America, especially the conservative grassroots. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, We'll be having our guest from Turning Point USA, and we'll be discussing tonight preserving liberty and restoring America economic prosperity. And, of course, uh, join our guest tonight, folks, Stephanie Conway from Turning Point USA, and, of course, me, the host, uh, together with our panelists, activist Cindy Todd, constitutional scholar Kelly Mordecai, and Dan Gray, former columnist of the Washington Times. And, of course, if you give us a call at 347-945-7428, we will get you into the show. 
usually that happens around the after about an hour or so, hour and a half after we get myself in with the interview and then with our uh, panelists and guests. And so we'll open it up to the audience. And then once you are in, unlike a lot of those, uh, you get to stay on the line and join our roundtable discussion. So it's not just where you come onto the show and you just stay your five, ten minutes and, and then leave and listen to the rest. You actually can become part of the show by staying on and being part of our roundtable discussion. Now, Bart's Logic does welcome uh, Turning Point USA's Texas field organizer, Stephanie Conway, uh, to discuss the grassroots organization. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Turning Point USA. We'll talk more about it with our guest, uh, Stephanie, who was uh, born in Connecticut, uh, brings passion and drive for liberty and American restoration. And we'll give her the opportunity to tell more about herself. And I do see our guest on the line. So without any further ado, I bring in Stephanie. Thank you very much, Stephanie, for calling to the show. How are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for having me. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, it's, uh, look forward to uh, the Wednesday nights here on uh, Bard's Logic. Great to have uh, someone from a grassroots organization because uh, that's what uh, we focus on here. That's why we call ourselves the Grassroots We the People Show, especially focusing on uh, the grassroots, which is, of course, a conservative uh, bend to it, as you've uh, probably noticed. So we'll go ahead and uh, get right into uh, the interview, okay? Okay, sounds great. All righty. And so uh, and this, thank you for coming to the show. Uh, so first, uh, let's go ahead and you just tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, why you consider yourself and why you uh, are conservative, and what attracted you to become involved in the grassroots? Uh, sure. I grew up in Connecticut, as you mentioned, which, you know, conservative and Connecticut don't tend to go together, which is why <laughs> I actually, <laughs> yeah, which is why I got more involved in the movement is I really, you know, women kind of have this thing where we like to be right all the time. And I took that into the political arena and I argued with teachers and I got very active and interested in being able to prove to them that I was right. And that's kind of what got me into politics and grassroots and wanting to be able to go to lower level things and speak with different people, organize on college campuses, work with other young people my age. And that's kind of how I got into the turning point thing was it was working with college students who otherwise don't really have access to somebody who can teach them how to handle different debates, who could teach them how to articulate conservative opinions or different opinions on economics and capitalism and the free market. They just kind of go with what they're told. And far too often what they're told is the exact opposite of what really works when you look at it practically. Yes, yeah, so anyway, I remember back in 2012, I, I went back to college uh, late. <laughs> so it wasn't, no, it's not 2012, 2008 rather. So it wasn't that late, uh, but still I was in my 30s when I went back uh, to college. And, you know, I, I went to some uh, Republican clubs uh, back then when I was actually a Republican. I'm pretty much an independent now. Um, but oh, it was un unreal uh, how much there was there for, uh, Obama and, and the Democrats. I mean, there was hardly anything there for uh, McCain. I mean, there was just a one little club. And I mean, I, I, everywhere you looked, everywhere you turned, it was Obama this and Obama that. And there was, you know, driving people to the polls. And it was it was just amazing on the college campus. 
and, and this was a uh, you know a Catholic university. It was Jesuit, so maybe that has something to do with it. It was a uh, uh, university I went to. My my father went to. That's one of the reasons why I picked to go there because it was my father's alma mater. Uh, but I was actually surprised uh, that at that university, how much uh, liberalism there was and how much support there was for Obama. Well, it doesn't matter if it's a Catholic university, a public university, or a private university. They're overrun, really, with the idea that government can save you and government will solve all your problems and you need to look to government. And part of that is you have a lot of different boards that get to vote their own pay raises and things like that. And if you take government out of the equation, then they don't really have that kind of power anymore, that bureaucratic control. And that's why you see this one-sided kind of education, if you want to even call it that. Mm -hmm on college campuses, and students don't really know exactly how to combat it. They don't teach critical thinking in a way that really gets students to think about the issues, look at the different sides of the issues, the different contributing factors, and then adequately articulate an opinion on why they feel one way or the other. It's more, can you regurgitate what the teacher told you? So when you have mm -hmm. administrations going unchallenged, it doesn't give the students any kind of access to an education that would really give them the way to challenge it. So they're looking for those grassroots activists to come onto campus and to talk to them and to teach them that they're not alone and here's how you can talk back, here's how you can fight it without getting yourself kicked out of class or kicked off the university entirely. Yeah, one question I do want to, you know, I want to ask, and I want to ask this early on, you know, I was doing some, uh, some research things of that nature um, on Turning Point USA and, and how it fits in with other grassroots. And, you know, I see that, you know, work with other grassroots organizations. Uh, one of those uh, perhaps is not going to happen, and that's the Young Americans for Liberty. Because uh, uh, in June of last year, maybe you could shed some light and maybe give your uh, Turning Point side on this. Uh, in June of last year, the executive director, Jeff uh, phrase or phrase or whatever of the Young Americans uh, for Liberty sent out a message urging members of their organization not to work with uh, Turning Point USA. Uh, now, can you tell us more about that and perhaps uh, give their side and on why, you know, what was that was about? Sure. You know, I'm not at liberty to go into full details with what exactly happened between Turning Point USA and Young Americans for Liberty. There was a staff member on our end to cross some lines, and once our corporate office and our headquarters found out about what this staff member did, that staff member was terminated, the issue was removed from our system, and we extended an apology to YAL. We continue to try to work with YAL in the different areas that we can. There are some student groups that are still willing to work with us. Turning Point's biggest thing that we like to do on campus and with other students is work with these different groups. You see YAL, YAF, the CRs, and different kind of factions of the right fighting on campus in a place where it's already hostile mm -hmm. to conservatives. So when we come across these issues, we try to handle it in a way that would appease both sides. Unfortunately, YAL leadership wasn't happy with the termination of this employee and getting rid of what was in question to solve the issue. And we've extended offers of peace and trying to work through it. And there's only so mm -hmm. much you can do if they're not willing to accept the apology of sorts. Right. I mean, and I've, and I've got more details, you know, myself on on what happened, you know, through some research. I'm like, you know, one of the things we, we 
you know, promote folks to do here is to do their own research. If they're more interested in it, they can they can find it. Um, and, and I won't go into those details of, of that here because uh, that's not the um, the purpose of the show tonight. Um, so I just want to give uh, you guys the opportunity to uh, address that, uh, just in case someone you know later on tonight uh, would call or while doing research uh, for the show, um, you know, or, you know, on the organization, and they come across that, you know, then they can hear you know your answer on the show, and I really appreciate it. Um, so tell us uh, about the Turning Point USA. Tell us about its mission and what its uh, key tenants are. Turning Point USA's mission is kind of to be the moveon.org, but of the right. You see the left go out and they talk to college students and they mobilize the youth and they, youth and they take advantage of that major voting demographic in a way that you don't see the right do that. So what we do is we try to identify young people who feel the same way that we do economically and on these different issues and then give them the tools to be more active on campus. We want to give them free activism materials. We want to direct them to people like our field staff so that they have a full-time member of our organization who could help guide them through the process, who can go onto campus and be active with them, who can talk to them about the different resources available to college students who maybe don't come at it from the left-wing point of view. Turning Point USA's mission is really to promote fiscal responsibility in a smaller government on campus. We want young people in high school and college, and we're now extending our reach to homeschooling students as well, to understand that there is this way of looking at things because they're so often not exposed to it. And then we want to teach them about them. There's, here are our talking points, now go forward and say this. And Turning Point doesn't do that. Turning Point will talk to you about the issues, will engage in debate and discussion with different students, students who don't agree with us, professors, administrators, whoever wants to talk. And what that does is it gives students a forum to learn about these different issues that they otherwise would not get without discussion that brings both sides to light. We're about educating the youth and getting them excited about these different issues and the impacts that they will have on their future so that they go forward and they encourage their friends to vote or they encourage their friends to get involved and they talk to other college students on campus. Word of mouth and the grassroots, as you mentioned earlier, are severely underutilized on the right end of the spectrum, on the smaller government end of the spectrum. So a big part of what we do is try to take advantage of the tools that we have and mobilize from the ground up. And so why do you think it's important to get the youth, especially college students, involved in the political system? What do I think is important? Yeah, no, you know, you know, why is it important? This is a topic that, you know, at least up until recently that I've uh, heard that, um, you know, it just hasn't been a topic that's been brought up, you know, in the past, I'd say, past couple decades, but, you know, but recently, I would say since, you know, around 2008, you're hearing more about the youth vote. Now, why is it important, you think, to get, uh, as I said, college students and uh, the youth, you know, whether in college or not, you know, into the, you know, political system, into the political arena where they, you know, are active, uh, you know, boots on the ground, things of that nature, actually be a part of uh, America's political system. Sure. Well, if you look at numbers alone, young people, people turning 18, make up your fastest growing voting demographic. There's a million of them turning 18 every day, and they're not going to be 18 this election year and then never vote again. They're going to be 18, 19, 20, and so on and so on through every single voting year that comes up. And if you can mobilize them when they're young and you can take advantage of this opportunity to get them to learn, they're still trying to get a grasp on things when they're 17, 18, they're kind of just learning about politics because let's face it, unless you're 
somebody like me or yourself who's just genuinely interested in it, you don't really want to pay attention to it. So if you could get them involved at least a little bit while they're young, if you can get them to see the importance of it while they're young, then they carry that with them throughout the rest of their lives. And if you continue to work on the base, and the base being the youth, then it continually expands the amount of people that identify with your beliefs and your values, and that mobilizes a much larger effort going forward. So the youth are really critical to a prolonged existence of these ideas rather than a short-lived or maybe two to four year, depending on the election cycle, existence of these ideas. Yeah, and I'm bringing it to the the elections. In 2008, 66% of the youth voters voted for Barack Obama and 60% voted for Barack Obama and supported him in 2012. Now, many are believing that the youth vote, or some are, you know, the millennials, uh, may be pivotal in 2016. Uh, now, do you think, once again, they'll rally behind the Democrats as they did for Obama? Uh, do you think they'll do it again this year, or, you know, in 2016, which is fast approaching? Well, who they rally behind depends heavily on who actually can get their vote and get their attention and who pays attention to them. Something that I've encountered and I'm sure other field coordinators have encountered as well is when you talk to students about various candidates, the students come back at you and they say, well, he hasn't said what he will do for young people or she hasn't said what she's going to do for college students. And so they feel kind of left out. And what we need to do is get young people more involved so that it's a more appealing demographic to our candidates because they will be critical. They will still be voting. They're always looking for what somebody else can do for them or how they can better their own personal lives. So if we can find a way to show them that issues that advocate for more fiscal responsibility or capitalism and the free market are actually beneficial to them, they may stop feeling so left out by the political process. And then when they do turn out to vote, they could end up going more to the right because that's where you have those free market values that allow for success. If we don't mobilize and take advantage of this opportunity we have to talk to young people on campus, if we wait until 2016 and after the primaries to try to get them to vote for smaller government, then it's not going to happen. The left has an infrastructure in place on college campuses and in places that young people frequent. If we don't work at chipping that away, then they'll be able to carry on growing the youth vote for the left. And what of the social issues, uh, such as, you know, 57% of the youth uh, were for legalizing marijuana, well, which, frankly, that's that I'm kind of on the same page of that myself, just, you know, that would lead the way for legalizing industrialized hemp, at least that's how I see it. Uh, but in 67, uh, the youth support same-sex marriage, and, and a lot of them may vote uh, more Democrat or liberal because, you know, that while they may be you know, more fiscally conservative or economically conservative, uh, they are more socially liberal. How would uh, you address uh, those topics in order to, you know, bring the youth over uh, to, you know, supporting conservative candidates? Well, Turning Point USA as a whole doesn't really advocate on behalf of social issues. We try to stay out of that arena specifically kind of for the reasons that you stated in terms of the movement more towards the left among young people in social arenas. But what we do when we speak to these students is we explain to them the significance of fiscal issues, of foreign policy, of these other 
tremendous ma matters over the importance of social issues. Something that I use often when I'm talking to young people is kind of the metaphor of a stage. Think of your foreign policy, your economic policy, your strength of a nation as your stage. If that's not strong, you could pile social issues onto it all day and it will inevitably collapse. So what we need to work towards first is a strong and prosperous nation. Once you have that, then you can move a little bit on social issues. You could work harder on your maybe pet project. But there are candidates on the right who advocate for smaller government and fiscal responsibility who tend to be maybe a little bit more libertarian. And students don't really know what a libertarian is if they're not adequately involved because political breakdowns of different parties do get very complicated very quickly. So something we also do with students is kind of help them to self-identify in a way that teaches them about the different factions of the right, so to speak, so they don't feel like it's either John McCain or Barack Obama. They realize that there are those different choices, and if they work towards helping those candidates, they could see somebody who's maybe for a smaller government but sympathetic to their social issues as well. And I'm glad you brought that up because that was actually a, an excellent segue to my next question um, for that. And as I mentioned, uh, election season 2016 uh, is fast approaching. And do you believe that, and you talk about supporting candidates, things of that nature, uh, do you believe that Turning Point uh, would ultimately support the Republican candidate, regardless of who it is, uh, even if they were deemed to be uh, not a conservative candidate? And uh, that, that's the first part of the question. After that, after that I have uh, another uh, one that kind of piggybacks on that. Go ahead. Sure. Turning Point USA is a 501c3 nonprofit, so we won't ever go out and advocate for a specific candidate. It could be somebody who says word for word all of our talking points, and we won't advocate on behalf of that candidate. What Turning Point does when we go to campuses is talk about issues. We talk about policies. We talk about the different ways that these policies affect students but especially during an election year, we will not talk about, as a whole, candidates. Our field coordinators are allowed to, in their personal lives, advocate for a candidate, but not as a representative of Turning Point USA. Okay. Well, the next question, and you, you pretty much already answered it, but I'll, I'll put it out there anyway, because uh, the, the next one was, you know, what if there was a, someone from a, another party, such as uh, the Constitution Party, who uh, may, who is running like Virgil Goode, who was running in 2012 for the Constitution Party for president. I mean, he was definitely more conservative than Romney. And I was just wondering whether there'd be a, a candidate such as that that would be supported more so than the um, than the Republicans. But as I said, I believe you answered that uh, question. So you're in Texas, and you're the uh, field organizer there in Texas. So let's go ahead and uh, just be a little local for uh, a little bit and tell us what Turning Point specifically is doing there in your state. Uh, Turning Point has three full-time field coordinators in Texas based out of San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas. All of us go to all of our schools in our tremendously huge regions because Texas is just massive. And we work with college students on a day-to-day -day basis to encourage them to kind of appreciate what their state has. We're in a little bit of a different situation than maybe, say, Illinois in that you're not combating these big government policies as much. Texas is already very conservative. But we do try mm -hmm. to make sure that we can keep that swing with the youth, help them identify. Something that I found specifically in Dallas, and I can't speak for our Houston and San Antonio coordinators as much, is that students just have no idea where 
they fall on the political spectrum. They can tell you what they think they're supposed to be because that's what everyone tells them, and that's a liberal Democrat. But when you get into these conversations about policy and what's going to happen after college and the national debt, they are actually very conservative most of the time, at least economically. So when you have these conversations with them in North Texas and the Dallas region, what I've found is we're really helping students to realize that you have your own thoughts and they lead you to a different point than what everybody is telling you you have to be. And when they have that realization and that they're not really alone, they're more open to being active. They want to help out. They think it's exciting that somebody is there who can help them understand their own opinion on politics and the different things going on because nobody really does that. They're just told what they're supposed to think and not how to actually think. Okay, one of the one of the issues that's coming up and one of the things uh that's you know starting to be talked about and this is you know from Obama uh is that you know forgiving you know student loans or doing something about the uh student loan situation. Uh what's you know do you guys talk any about that issue uh in Turning Point? We talk about student loans and national debt and the student share of the national debt kind of as a whole. What we call it is kind of generational theft. And we look at the mm-hmm. wasteful spending of government, what they do with all your money, and how you're kind of put in a weird spot when you graduate and that you already owe thousands of dollars. But you can't always find a job because you don't have experience because you were getting the degree that they told you you needed to get to get the job. So either way, you kind of walk out of college half prepared. And we open up students to seeing that kind of weird thing that our government has created and how you really shouldn't be forced into some kind of debt when you're already paying so much of the government and they're wasting the money on top of that. And then they squander your job opportunities and tack interest onto your loans. So you can't get a job, you're accruing interest, and the government is just throwing away more of the money. And students really get on board with that actually very quickly. They don't like that idea, and they know a lot of other students who are maybe older than them who've graduated for a year or so and still can't find a job. And it's very frustrating for them because they were promised, you get this degree, you'll get a job, and you can pay off your loans. And that's not happening. Okay. Well, no, I certainly agree with that. I know a lot of folks uh, who are not, you know, went to college and and are not doing what they – uh, what they call it, what they went to college for? They're, they're, it's just mm. not there. Um, and uh, you know, I was looking at your website, uh, some it's, it's it's a busy website um, at TurningPointUSA.net. Uh, what do you think is the best feature uh, there for when folks visit that your website? Folks, as in students, or folks, as in just people visiting? Just, yeah, people in general, people uh, looking at your website. Uh, what do you think would be the best feature there? The best feature there would probably be just kind of the overview in the front page. I know it's crazy and there's so many different things that you could jump to from there, but we have our Mm -hmm. columnist program right from there. We have ways to get free materials, whether you're an existing organization, a Tea Party group, a Republican group, or a student organization, and then we have links to things where you could see our students' work, like our columnist program, our newspaper, where you can see what young people are writing about and you can see what they're talking about and what they're doing on campus. There are a lot of really great resources that you can access right from our front page that show you not only what we're doing, but what our students are getting excited about. Okay, yeah, because, you know, as I said, took a look at that. And, uh, you know, as I said, as you, and you, you know, concurred, there's you know, definitely a lot on there. 
uh, for folks to check out. So definitely, folks, check out TurningPointUSA.net. And uh, is that how people go to get involved? You get a, a part of one of your chapters? Join yeah, one of your chapters? Absolutely. Go to TurningPointUSA.net slash get involved. There's a link right on the front page. And you can, if you're a student group, or order materials for your organization. If you're an outside group, if you're, say, an adult group or something just happening in a region, you could be part of our free market alliance which is where we send materials and kind of give help to other groups looking to maybe reach out to young people. Or there's also the donate option because we are a 501c3. Anytime somebody looks at something that we're doing and they think this is great and I want to support it, it's also 100% able to be written off on your taxes as a deduction because we're a nonprofit. You've got it. And uh, Ducey, it's about the uh, the bottom of the hour here before we uh, uh, move on, but let's first hear from the Patriot Journalist Network. You're not just listening to a show, you're part of the powerful voice of the conservative conversation on Blog Talk Radio. Nothing worthwhile has ever been accomplished without teamwork. PJNet invites you to help make a difference by adding your voice to the team, grassroots, conservatives working together to take our country back. To find out more, Check out the PJNet hashtag and visit our website at PatriotJournalist.com. Let PJNet add our muscle to your hustle. Definitely, folks, uh, check out the Patriot uh, Journalist Network at www.PatriotJournalist.com. And so now we get back to uh, our guest, Stephanie Conway from Turning Point USA. And I just got a, a couple of questions, uh, one's regarding uh, uh, PJNet uh, before uh, we bring in our panelists, and I do see uh, Dan there. We'll get you in soon. I also see uh, in there also Kelly, and Kelly uh, bringing up Libertarians. Uh, he still is. I, I think he might be n not much anymore. I don't know. We'll, Kelly, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but he's a resident Libertarian on our panel, uh, so we'll uh, hear from Kelly uh, in a little while. Uh, but first, have you ever met uh, the founder, Charlie Kirk? Oh, I've met Charlie Kirk. We've all met Charlie Kirk and worked with Charlie Kirk all the time. He's a very active and engaged part of our organization, and that really makes him kind of a great asset to all of us as our founder and executive director is we go to Chicago once or twice a year to work with him and the rest of our field staff on training, different ideas that we can do, brainstorming, working together. He's a very hands-on member of the organization and a great motivational speaker to especially our new hires. Okay, yeah, I was just gonna see, you know see what your you know uh, you know what what you took away you know you know you know, from things of that nature you know when you sat down working with them things like that but you already answered that and so now I mentioned earlier you just heard from the Patriot Journalist Network uh, the hashtag PJNet are you familiar with the uh, organization? With the Patriot Journalist Network, no, I'm not. Okay, yeah, it's definitely something to to check out. Uh, you know, you may I don't know. Are you much on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Okay, yeah, I mean, if you're browsing through and you ever see the hashtag, literally the hashtag PJNet, um, that's them. That's the Patriot Journalist Network. Uh, it's you know, it's definitely something to check out uh, for yourself. Definitely something to check out. For Turning Point USA, perhaps at some point uh, you guys get linked up to work with other you know, organizations, uh, things of that nature. Uh, there are definitely some uh, folks to look into. Uh, just you know, let me know. We can correspond off air. You know, I'm friends with the the founder, 
Mark Prasic, a great guy. Um, he's the one who, he started it uh, back in 2012 uh, when we, you know, we were working together uh, doing some campaigning stuff uh, for the uh, the primaries. But that's definitely something to check out. But I do. Uh, but as I said, I want to go ahead and bring uh, our panelists in, and uh, we will have the guys come in according to where they called. And that was Dan. Thank you very much, Dan, for calling to the show tonight. How are you? Oh, I'm starting to warm up just a little bit. Heat went out in the car again. Oh, good. Yeah, your voice okay? Oh yeah. Huh? No, my voice. Yeah, you is sound okay. a little like uh, your voice a little scratchy. <laughs> now the voice is okay. Uh, the fingers, uh, they're still attached. So, uh, hey, that which does not kill you can still give you frostbite. Um, anyway, it's been a busy day and a uh, busy evening, and uh, I'm really interested in everything Ms. Conway has been saying. Ms. Conway, do you prefer Miss or Ms.? Are you? Does that matter? Steph is good. Steph, that's, that's my sister's <laughs> yeah. name. Stephanie is a wonderful name. And uh, Texas is a wonderful state and Turning Point USA. Uh, regardless of what uh, YAL and Turning Point might have had uh, some differences, I see that there's a lot of overlap in the groups that uh, YAL is working with and the groups that uh, Turning Point is working with, uh, primarily Heritage and Heritage Action, which I'm really, really pleased to be part of as a Sentinel myself. Um, I have a problem, though, and, and this isn't a problem with what you're doing. I think it's good what you're doing and what YAL is doing, trying to reach young people. But I have a problem with young people, and it's not because I'm an old guy. I've been a curmudgeon since I was a young person. Uh, it's been a little bit of time, a few decades, and I dropped out of college, uh, partly because I had my own business and uh, I didn't have time for that nonsense, and partly because I, I saw a lot of people similar to the ones you're running across who, who just are, are sheep. They're, they're just doing what they're told. And I get that youth is supposed to be liberal. And, and uh, Churchill, to paraphrase him, said, if you're not a liberal when you're 20, you have no heart. If you're not conservative when you're 40, you have no brain. Well, I always sort of had um, you know, some of both and missed a lot of both too, I guess. I, I'm still growing up. But uh, the one thing about youth, in addition to being liberal and looking for freedom... And that's real liberal, not, not this progressive nonsense that they call liberalism. The, the, the title is misused. Liberal is people who want liberty. That does include social issues. It's not saying I'm in favor of uh, gay marriage or smoking pot or any of the rest of this stuff, although I personally I don't have a problem with it. Um, it's a, a person's choice. I don't have to do it or even like it. My biggest problem is that youth is also naturally rebellious. And I'm not seeing enough of that. So when I meet older folks and, and I talk and convert people because I used to be a progressive, I mean, my credentials with the progressive movement have me so so high up on their hate, hate this guy list. They hate me not just because I'm hopefully being effective for liberty, but because I used to be one of them. And I, I, you know, I worked for Acorn uh, right in Denver for Wade Rathke a year after he founded it and uh, less than a year. So that's where I come from when I was college age and dropping out. But when I'm, I'm talking to older folks, I'm, I'm trying to be gentle because they made a mistake. They bought into it or they were apathetic. And I'm trying to be gentle because I'm not trying to attack them and say, it's all your fault. I'd like to grab them and myself and all the rest of us baby boomers and shake them and say, it's your fault. You took your eyes off the ball. But I'm gentle with them. And I'm finding, I tried that with, with uh, younger folks. My, my kid's 21. I have a lot of 
uh, her compatriots that I used to coach, you know, a lot of kids uh, who are working in convenience stores, um, et cetera, that I see all the time, and I know their families, and I, and I talk to them. And that gentle approach just didn't work at all. They were just smirking at me. They were laughing, ah, this old guy. So I got a little bit angry, and I thought, I'll just let a little out and just tell the truth bluntly, harshly, not harsh at them, because they didn't do anything to cause this. 21-year-old did not have anything to do with causing the mess we're in right now. They don't have to take responsibility for it because they were born into it. It's already happened. But I started telling them the, the blunt, honest truth about the way things are. And when they come back at me with the progressive talking points, I just tear it up. And the funny thing is, instead of being alienated, they were amused, they were engaged, they were interested. And that harsh reality... And that rebellion is what I think we need to see a lot more of in youth. Not this, this fake staged progressive, here's what you're going to believe, let's all get to the polls, let's all hold the same signs, don't make your own signs, don't think for yourself. I mean, kids are supposed to be anti-establishment, but statism, this progressive notion, is not anti-establishment, it is the establishment. It's 99% of the Democratic Party, and probably, no. It's a, numbers are a little better now. I'd say maybe 70, 60, 70% of the Republican Party, the party, not the, the rank-and-file voters out there. And so I don't care if it's social issues, whatever resonates with these kids. If, if they want to be free to uh, express themselves, you know, be artistic, I get that. You're not going to get that from statism. It's going to be regulated. And as long as you're saying what they want you to say, they're fine with that. They'll even give you money for that. But if you step out of line and you say anything because that's the true vision you've got, you're not only not going to get money, you're going to get grief, you're going to get hassled. And it's the same thing with if somebody chooses to uh, smoke pot or whatever, or, or, and this is the big thing, somebody wants to make money. Now, this is supposedly some big sin these days. When I did drop out of school, I had my own business and I was working full time. And, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed working from an early age. I liked investing time and effort and then in time, some money and some thought and some planning. And I actually had employees and, and I, I liked helping them make money and giving value. There's a lot of entrepreneurs out there. There's a lot of kids who don't really know how to do this, but there's a natural instinct. It's simple. You know, you, you buy low, you sell high if you're trading. Uh, you uh, represent something and try and sell it at a profit. Uh, you take it from here to there. You add value to it. Uh, you perform a service that is either unique that nobody else has or is just done a whole whole lot better or is done so efficiently that you can scrape out a little bit of profit for yourself for it. Because there's no kid I know, not one. Even even the ones I know who are, are pretty, you know, they're, they're, they're not into material things a whole lot. They still like stuff. I don't know anybody who doesn't like stuff. They want to have stuff. So, you know, I have to admit, um, most of the college kids I know whose parents are either footing a big chunk of the bill or they've got massive student loans and they think that this is going to really do something, they don't impress me as having a heck of a lot of, uh, I was going to say manhood, but there's a lot of, of girls in there too, ladies. Um, I'm old enough to tell people <laughs> who are 21 boys and girls. Um, but... It's the kids out there um, who are stuck at home. Right now, in this country, 
think about this, you know, this large voting block you're talking about. Uh, 20, I worked at the unemployment office, 25, 30%, sometimes more, a little bit less, depends on the community, of kids in the 18 to 25-year-old group who should be either learning something or learning how to work or you know, getting a skilled trade or something that's going to give them a future. They're sitting at home because they've got no future, and this is what was handed to them. So what I try and tell them is this. It's not enough to just do negatives. I don't want to just say, well, you know, uh, Obama is bad. Well, what about Bush? Bush is bad. You know, what about the Senate? Well, you know, the, the rhinos, and the, they're bad. NDAA is bad. It's bad that they have the, the uh, idea of uh, NSA. We all agree on that. That's a good starting point. I ask them, well, what do you want that's positive? You know, I, I'm providing some positive ideas, but let's face it. I'm 53 years old. To most young people, they even the ones who really, really like me and respect me, and there, there are a few of them, more than a few, um, they look at me as I'm an old dude. I got gray in my beard. They're the ones with the answers. And you know what? They're right. Every generation rejects what came before them and comes up with a new way of looking at it. And sometimes that new way actually is a better way. And sometimes it's only marginally better. Sometimes it's revolutionary. It's radically better. And I tell them, look, you know what? You're going to come up with the solutions. I have faith in you. You're young. You're seeing things with fresh eyes. But whatever solution you come up with, as long as the state runs your life and everybody else's life and makes all the decisions, doesn't matter. It won't happen. You won't get credit for it. It won't improve anybody's lives. In fact, if you're very effective you're going to be targeted and they're going to give you no end of crap for it. And they do believe that. They've seen it. They've grown up. And this may be the saving grace of this generation. Um, they've grown up with authority that almost uniformly lied to them. There are, they have very few role models out there uh, who, I mean, even among the coaches that I was with, uh, the volunteer organizations, some of them, it's like they've already fallen by the wayside. Not nothing sexual or anything like that, but like drunkards or people who, yeah, get caught doing bad stuff. It's like, and and their teachers, and the local politicians, and the people who are running the PTA, and time after time, scandal after scandal, little things, big things. They see these people suck, and like all youth since Plato's time, they say, well, we can do better. Well, damn it, I want to give them a chance to do better. And quite frankly, no matter how many 80-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 60-year-olds and we'll go down as far as 30, no matter how many older adults we have, if we don't have the youth, this, this liberty movement is going to sputter and fizzle. And it can't afford to sputter and fizzle because this is our survival here. It's reached a point where if we don't take it back and we don't unleash the creativity of America – not only won't we have a chance to fix things and become that shining city on a hill that we never were and, and really make something great, but we're going to turn into something horrible. And we all know what the end result of that looks like. It looks like North Korea today or Iran. And, and I do talk too much, so Stephanie, uh, please don't let me just keep going. Let's hear some more from you. <laughs> well, <laughs> Go ahead, Dan, if you got any questions or anything. And then we also got... Uh, Kelly, wait on the last well. Go ahead, Steph. I'd love to address kind of your disdain for the youth because I share that, and I am the youth. Um, 
I look at millennials and I kind of call us the microwave generation. They want it here, they want it now, and they want somebody else to do all the work for them. And that's where you run into a lot of problems is they do look at the state to the solution to everything. Maybe they do kind of want liberty in their own weird way, but they have this mindset that it comes from the state because the state has to mandate that we all be nice to each other. The state has to mandate that we all be tolerant. The state has to mandate these things or we just won't do that. And it's just government is their answer. And part of what I attribute that to, and I'm glad you brought up North Korea, is that these students have never really, especially my generation, we haven't lived through a period of time where you see really the harsh realities of more totalitarian governments. You haven't seen the USSR. You haven't dealt with really actually being in Iran. You haven't been in North Korea. You don't understand the real severe ramifications of allowing government to take that kind of hold. And history is something that they all look at and they kind of scoff at, and it's not important. We don't need to worry about this. But the reality is if you don't understand what government could be, then you cannot appreciate what government is not. And when I say that, what I mean is you don't understand the power, really, of having less government until you can really understand what the problems with having more government is. They can't be bothered to understand why North Korea is so bad, why North Koreans are shorter, statistically, than their genetic counterparts to the South. And that has everything to do with a smaller government and embracing capitalism and that kind of thing. Yeah, they were starved. They're, they're actually, uh, when, when we have younger people who manage to get traded or escape to China and repatriate to South Korea, they, they try and give them remedial education, and they can't even give them anything past an elementary school education because during the most formative years, while our kids are being, you know, getting all kinds of vitamins and great food and, and you know, tremendous health care, uh, they're starved so badly that their brains never had a chance to develop. It's functional idiocy. It's sad. It's, it's beyond sad. It's a tragedy. You're absolutely right. Another tendency of youth in every generation is to scoff at anything that came, that came before to say, we're different. It's not that way for us. And it takes some realization to, to get to a point where you understand that, yeah, people haven't changed. And I think the way to do this, the way I've found to do this is to use, and, and I, I'll give credit to Jesus for this, even though I'm not a Christian, I'm Jewish, but uh, he used parables. Uh, Abe Lincoln used parables. It's a tremendously powerful way to tell a short story. And rather than getting into the boring facts of, well, let's see, what year did Yorktown occur? And what were the factors that led up to it? And, and who was, uh, you know, Admiral Destang of the French fleet. I mean, that's boring stuff unless you're really, really a wonk and are into it. But if you tell them a tremendous story about uh, a, a guy who went against his religious heritage as a Quaker and fought, and fought losing battles, every single battle he lost, and he retreated and retreated, but he managed to make the other side pay more. And he used guerrilla tactics. And bit by bit, he drew the, the southern army of the British into a trap where they were, you know, it, boy, it sounds, when you, when you do it right, it sounds like a storyline on a tremendously good action-adventure role-player game. And, and that's what it has to be. It has to be stories of people. 
Young people, old people, nobody's different. We all are bred inside our brains to actually enjoy listening to stories about people so that we can imagine, hey, I'm like that guy. Hey, I know that lady. That lady lives next to me. Wow, that fella sounds like the guy I went to school with. So they, they make these analogies, and that's how they learn. And that's why literature is so good, and they're not teaching that with Common Core. Tell me, on, on the college campuses, have the, um, college, the Common Core effects started to come through, the, the No Child Left Behind, which turned into Common Core? Are those kids now in the college system? Hello? Am I still on? Um, yeah, I'm still here, oh. Steph. Oh, there she is. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, you know, right. it's, not your <laughs> it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Talking, people tend to fall asleep. <laughs> it happens. It's all but, good. But are you Wait. getting those? Uh... Yes, it is. But uh, are you getting those uh, the the uh, bleed over from the super dumbing down? I mean, they started it in my generation. Back in the 60s when I was in school, it was uh, new math. There was nothing wrong with the old math. It's still the way that math works. Uh, it was phone- We went from uh, phonetics, which is phonics, which parents had to teach their own kids, to sight reading, you know, and all these other crazy ideas that didn't work really well. And so they decided to spend more money and put more time into it and come up with ideas that worked even, even less. Um, are you running across that? It's hard to tell with um, politics and policy and that kind of thing because it's something that unless students are really interested in it, they don't engage themselves in. So we find ourselves kind of coming across students who just have no idea to start with. We don't really go into the different subjects so much as how government will affect their lives going forward. But, I mean, when you look at the kinds of things they're before not teaching... I, and before if you, I talk about... Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to kind of talk about critical thinking again. If you want to look at kind of subjects and dumbing down, critical thinking isn't what one who well, can before, critically think before would I think talk it about was. Politics with anyone though. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. But before I no, talk sorry. about politics with anybody, um, I want to talk to them about something they're interested in, um, because everything relates to everything else. I mean, if you're a sports fan. All right. And there's a lot of sports fans on campus, guys and girls. Uh, they want to talk about sports. Um, and if you start talking to them about food, pretty soon it's cooking shows and competitions, which leads you into competitions on the, the playing field. And if you're interested in art, no matter what it is, the conversation is going to work its way around to art because everything is related. So I want to hear what they have to say first. And whatever their particular interests are, there's got to be some truth there. And it does relate to politics. I mean, if they're interested, for instance, in um, let's let's get away from the social stuff and the economic stuff, and look at just the the idea that they have the right to make up their own mind. I mean, the first thing that youth does when they're two years old is they say no. That is the beginning of an individual. That's somebody who says I'm separate from my mother and father. They they tell me what to do. And I have the power to just say, no, put my foot down, scream it, refuse, close my mouth. I don't care. The air, airplane's not coming in the hangar today. No, that's a feeding <laughs> joke. If you, yeah, um, yeah I, I, and 
I had a picture in my in and, my head there, Dan. And and you have uh, people eighteen to twenty five year olds. I mean, my God, basically that's what they're telling everybody else who's not in their their group. And and I I get this. I mean, they're right about this. Uh, it's the right thing for that stage of life is to say no. So why are they saying yes? And I, I, I don't have any problem confronting them directly and saying, okay, so you're saying no, you don't like this. Why are you saying yes to the people who run things? Why are you saying yes to the man behind the curtain? Why are you being manipulated? You know, It what, stems do, do, from like a fundamental ahead, misunderstanding. They don't really get what it means to say yes to the man behind the curtain. What we open with a lot and what we found to be successful is talking to them about themselves. If you, well, what do you want to do? Tell me about your career field that you're interested in. What are, what are your hopes and dreams? And then you can kind of segue into the pros and cons of different aspects of government and things that will affect them directly. Which That's all they want to talk about is themselves. And that's all they really kind well, of sure. seem to understand is themselves. So when you gear the conversation at them, you can get them to see kind of the error in their understanding of different things. It's not that they say yes because they know that government is the answer. They say yes, because that's what they understand to be the answer. And that's it kind of attributed a little bit to our parents' generation right now in that they grew up, our parents grew up during a time when you really had to work hard, or specifically my family as third-generation Italian immigrant, and my grandparents were had a very rough upbringing and coming from being poor to working their way up. And so... My mother and my father also grew up in a situation where they weren't as bad off, but they were still coming up. And then as that generation, as our mothers and fathers came together and they had us, it was from a place of being very strong economically. And it was, well, let's give them this. I want to give them that. And some parents more so than others. I mean, I had chores and you bet your butt I had to work for everything that I wanted. But a lot of young people I'm noticing when I talk to them and when I look at different backgrounds and upbringings, we're kind of just given things. And when you're younger, your parents are sort of the government. So the way that young people understand things is that if you go to mom and dad or the government, the government will then take care of you and there's minimal expected of you. And again, this is very situational, but I'm noticing it as being kind of a larger thing. It does occur frequently and it's severely impacting, I think, the youth's ability to understand that Government is not mom and dad, and it will not coddle you through life. So they say yes, thinking that it's kind of like mom and dad, but for grown-ups. And that's not at all what it is. Maybe we should analogy. be approaching <laughs> these. Yeah, maybe we should be approaching these kids when they're six months away from graduating and they can't find a job, or when when reality smacks them in the face. That's I'm, unfortunately I'm, what it comes down to is they, they don't realize it until they're in it. I've suggested jokingly mm -hmm. that we do a college student and socialist student exchange program where we <laughs> send our most liberal college students who advocate for socialism to a truly socialistic country. So they have to kind of see that, oh, wait, there you go. this is government because they don't have it. That understanding isn't there, that reality of what it truly means to exist under the large thumb of government isn't there. And it's not because young people are stupid. It's because we haven't taught them that. And they've grown up in a situation where things were pretty easy for them. So they don't well, really, you know they can't grasp it. 
we could ask them this, um, where's the money going to come from? You already owe money. You owe money for stuff that you never got. You owe money because people in the next half a generation ahead of you have been sucking off the government tit, and it's all borrowed money, and that borrowed money is your debt. And now, you know, you're, you're a young person, and you may already have a kid. Maybe in a few years you might consider having a kid. And that kid, what, what future has they got? You owe money for stuff that's it's, it's just today. Are you going to go borrow all this money just so that you can go to a concert or so that you can buy a new blouse? Or are you going to do without that, do something that's cheaper because it's not worth it? I mean, if you're borrowing money for an education, that may be worth it. If you're borrowing money for a major purchase, something that's going to give you a lot of value over a long period of time, such as a car, for instance, um, or a home, yeah, you can get a lot of value. If you get a good deal from a car or a home, you can get, have a place to stay and get around. Um, but you're going to spend all your money on cabs, on restaurants? I mean, I don't know. I mean, are you dealing with mostly rich kids or they have loans, don't they? The problem with kids now is they don't really grasp the idea of all that debt or where tax money comes from. It's just, oh, it's comes out of the money farm behind the White House or all the rich people <laughs> on Wall Street. and <laughs> That's not it at all. So it's, again, this misunderstanding is really our greatest hurdle because they cannot fathom that if you tax the wealthiest people in the country at 100%, it really wouldn't put a dent in anything. They don't look at taxes as something that affects them until you make them take out their pay stub and you say, see, look, this affected you or you pull out their sales receipt from a purchase they made and look, there's a tax there. And so I've told students there's a gas tax and they look at me and their eyes get big. I'm like, come on, do you fill your car? Do you realize that part of what you pay every Most time you it. fill mm-hmm. your car is, yeah, is gas tax. And they can't, they don't understand that taxes really do touch us in every aspect of our lives. It's not well, Joe Blow on Wall Street making six figures that's paying all the taxes. This is another right. thing that works, uh, which is to, real, to real, real quick, real quick, Dan. Let's and let, let's bring it back. Yeah, let's bring it back to your point. But I do want to bring in Kelly. with you guys uh, other folks oh, uh, who'd like to get on the line? Six zero three. You'll be in after uh, we bring in Kelly, our other panelist here, and our resident, uh, at least for a time. We'll see how it is. But uh, libertarian. Uh, thank you very much, Kelly, for calling to the show. How are you tonight, Kelly? I know Kelly's out there. I see him. <laughs> hey. oh, I'm doing some engineering stuff and uh I'm gonna, I'm gonna scramble for my phone. All right. Anyway, um hey, yeah, my gosh, Dan, great, I didn't know you were Jewish. Um, I know you, you kinda of believe in God. Yeah, I see I, I um although I'm a Christian I do the Passover and I do the Sukkot and other things and I also come from a long line of Jewish hog farmers. So we have a lot in common. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Dude, we, 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 we've got, we, we have three representatives of three different beliefs here tonight, maybe maybe four. I don't know where Steph is, um, and I'm going to ask you. See, I'm the, I'm the resident pagan on the show. So. And, and no beheadings, so we, we've got, no beheadings uh, tonight. Well, no, no beheadings I, 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 tonight, I, I, yeah. I've accused uh, Robert of making it the uh, Bar's Logic Gospel Hour, but teasing him. Um, anyway, we'll talk about that later maybe, but go ahead, Kelly. <laughs> oh, we're not in the after dark mode yet? Okay. Um, anyway, um, let's see here. Stephanie, the youth. I actually, 
um, when I was in college, I um, it was kind of my first uh, political thing, if you will. I was the president for Pat Robertson back in 88. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I'm dating myself here. All right. And we got number one on campus. And I got sent off as a to the county convention and then to the district convention. And it was just so cool to see how we worked our butts off. I was actually a, a co-op, long story, but I lived on campus. And I had a lot of time at night to uh, talk with people and make alliances and whatever. But it was just so cool to show up at the first um, caucus, and we pretty much dominated it. <laughs> it, was, it was just so cool. It was, of course, in the Republican Party, but I, I saw it, too. I saw a lot of um, youth, if you will, um, of course, in myself at the time, but I, I really like what you're doing. Well, I'm glad we have your support. It's something that, you know, we need to see more of. We need to have students who come away from it and later in life look back at it and think this was a really cool experience. And they should be looking at it that way when they're younger, too. We've kind of lost that. People look at it in caucuses and their eyes glaze over and they start to yawn and they get bored. And it's because we don't approach it in a way that really shows its relevance so they don't want anything to do with it. But it should be something that they could look back on and feel like it was a rewarding experience, like what you're saying now. Oh, it was totally. I, it just, And I made a whole bunch of new friends and, and learned all sorts of things. And, uh, yeah, it was really exciting. I, I have some other points. I, I'll, i got to take a call. I'll be right back. Well, while yep, he's, okay. While he's going Go ahead, Kelly. He's taking a call right now, Bob. Um what I was uh, going to say, there's it. another thing that, that you might find useful, Stephanie. Um, I, I like to paint a picture for people, and, and it seems to be very helpful with younger people. I ask them to, to look out at um, wherever they're standing, at across the street. I said, what do you see? And uh, buildings. There's a road. I said, And I point out a few other things. Yeah, look, there's a manhole cover, so we've got infrastructure underground, and there's electrical lines, there's gas lines, there's... Um, fiber optic lines now, there's uh, homes, they're insulated, look at the different materials that are from all these different places. Now think about this, just so many years ago, and in Texas, not more than about 150 years ago in most places, this was prairie, this was woods, this wasn't even a farm, this was just empty land. This wasn't created by government, but it was created. Wealth was created. It grows. It grows because people put effort and time and, and, and value into something, and it becomes something more than it was. I said, so you've inherited something. You, you walked in, and instead of having to build homes and roads and streetlights and, and cars and all the rest of this stuff, it's already here. But that's not the end of it. There's got to be lots more value that can be added, and it's not just video games. And it's up to you to come up with your idea, your brand new idea of how you're going to add value so that someday when your kids reach your age, they're going to look and say, look at all we inherited. Now, how can we make this better? Well, I, I want to ask Stephanie some, some more of her strategies because, um, you know, know your audience is kind of like speech 101. Um, you know, what other, um, I mean, obviously when I was like 21, that I could um, relate to college students and, and that. But what are some of your specific strategies? Um, we really like free stuff. 
<laughs> it sounds <laughs> so simple Everybody and so does. laughable. Exactly. But like we come at them with buttons and stickers and flyers and posters and they're just like, Oh my god, what is this? Like something I'll do is I'll go up to students, I'll be like, Hey, can I ask you a quick question? There's no wrong answer and you get a free button and they hear free and everything else in their world just ends and you are their focus because you are the provider of the free things. So if you can entice them with stuff, it's always a bonus. They get into the conversation. They're happy to be there. Or another thing that we really use a lot is pop culture. People who are in major TV shows stand out to them. Game of Thrones, House of Cards, Scandal. They see the poster. Yes, Game of Thrones. (laughs) (laughs) They see those posters with those recognizable images, and then they want to come talk to you. And once you get them talking, you get them talking about themselves. We did a 10-week program last semester that we called Big Government Sucks, and each week had a different theme where we talked about a different policy issue. My personal favorite was what we called the Great Youth Depression, and that's because I could sit down with a group of students, and I tend to go to to them when they're eating because they can't escape. They won't get up and run away. They're going to stay at that table. They're going to talk to you, and they're in a group, so they feel more comfortable expressing what their opinions are to this strange person that just approached them. And I would ask them, what do you want to do when you get out of college? What is your hope, your dream, or what, whatnot? And inevitably, at least one of them would tell me they wanted to start a business. And then you could bring up, you know, and I think it's China now, I'm blanking at the moment, you could start your own business by noon. You could decide in the morning you want to open a business, by noon you're ready to go. In the United States, it takes a very long time. There's lots of paperwork, lots of red tape. And that's kind of how it goes as government and bureaucracy continues to get bigger is it becomes increasingly more difficult to chase after the things that you really want. And so strategy-wise, and it sounds like I'm repeating myself here, but strategy-wise, get them talking about themselves. You can always, no matter what the issue is, bring it back to that individual. And they're very self-centered when they're young, and it's I age myself. I say that I'm 23 going on 45, maybe 60 some days, depending on my mood. Well, wait a minute. How old does that make us? <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. We have a whole plethora of ages here as well, is uh, religious affiliation. So. <laughs> oh, and yeah, i got to ask since you brought it up, and this is going to – I'm just going to – I promise, folks, I'm just going to digress for two minutes, if that. Just a simple question since you brought up Game of Thrones, big Game of Thrones fan. Uh, you said, oh, Game of Thrones, so i got to ask. One, do you watch the show? Oh, of course I do. Steph? Uh, so i got to yes, ask, who's your favorite character or characters? My favorite character, maybe Arya, I think, would be my favorite character. Oh, yep, I yep. can't stand any of that's the other mine. women in that program, but Arya is on yes, point. That, that's mine. <laughs> Arya is my favorite. She's my favorite. And then, of course, Tyrion. <laughs> Tyrion, yes. Tyrion is another phenomenal character. If they just did a show with Tyrion and Arya, I'd be okay. Yeah, those two are my favorite characters. Gotham. What's what, that? Gotham is the best show I've never, I've never seen it. I don't watch much TV. I haven't watched much in years. Uh, my, my wife likes to, you know, get a she keep, keeps a politics-free household. She makes me eat. She makes me fix things. She makes me sit and enjoy, which is good because I, I would probably obsess completely on this stuff. That's what I, I'm, I'm into. Um, I like mm-hmm. competition, and sports just leaves me 
very dry. It's, it's, there's no real competition there. It doesn't mean anything. Politics is a blood mm-hmm. sport. And so anyway, so she'll she'll watch cooking shows, and uh, we watch you know supernatural and dumb stuff. Whatever she she sees scandal and makes I I want to be with her, so I, I'll sit there and watch a little bit. But she started. She said, "You got to see this show. Uh, it's coming on Gotham." So the premiere came on, and of course, she who must be obeyed said to I if I'm going to spend time with her, in addition to having our discussions, I'm going to sit and we're going to enjoy a TV show. I was so blown away, and the entire season was really, really great. And I'm not just talking because of the production values, the the writing, the acting, uh, everything about it is just perfect. That's not enough. It's the story. And what it is is the story of a completely corrupted metropolis, a, a city. Basically, it's it's an entire world because it's a city. It's a city like New York City that's that big, where everybody's out for themselves, everything's crooked, everybody in charge is no damn good, nobody does their job right, nothing can be trusted, and those few people who see the truth don't just say, well, that's just the way it is, and they decide to do something about it. And, of course, there's the fantasy aspect, because the way they do these things, uh, I mean, it's the backstory for Batman. It's not, there's no Batman in it yet. Bruce is, Bruce is a young man. Bruce is uh, in prep school yet. Catwoman is a, is a kid. Um, Commissioner Gordon, uh, he's a police officer who's uh, bucking the system and getting nothing to grief for it. Uh, it's just fiction is the way to teach because, like I said, parables, stories. If you, you look at what kids are interested in, uh, my kid enjoys these uh, role-playing games. I don't play video games uh, back when... Uh, Pac-Man was around. I got bored with it and said, this is nothing compared to real life. So I, I just didn't keep up with it. But I see the stuff that she... Which role-playing game? i got to ask, because I'm a little bit of a gamer, Dan. No, Which I know. I get it. Game is There's n- <laughs> oh, that, that my kid likes? Um, uh, yeah. I, gosh, you know, I'm probably only going to mention one of them, but uh, he likes the Kingdom Hearts a lot. Uh, there's there's other ones uh-huh. that she does, I'm sure. But uh, I'm a Dragon Age it, guy. Myself. Yeah, no, and I got friends who do World of Warcraft and all that. But what is it? It's a story of people. It's a commentary about the outside world reflected in fiction, and that's what it is. It's it, fiction gives you that opportunity. So there are great stories out there, and don't hesitate to steal them as long as you're not going word for word. It's not plagiarism. If you take 1984 by Orwell and you tell that story. Just tell a bit of that story. Tell Fahrenheit 451 by Bradbury. You know, um, some of these things translated really well. If you look at uh, some of the, the problems we're facing with high technology and how it's uh, assisting the statists in taking over, uh, you could uh, take Philip K. Dick's very short story, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which became Blade Runner. Now that's a few years back, but the story's still great. But why do you think Shakespeare stole stories and people keep stealing from Shakespeare? It's the story. Of course you have to update it. I mean, most people, if you tried to talk to them in Elizabethan English, I mean, they're, they're not going to get it. They, it's very dense. And people in uh, Shakespeare's time wouldn't have necessarily understood the references if you started to talk to them in uh, Chaucer uh, language, you know, from, from three, four hundred years before. Canterbury, too. But... 
um, if you if you tell a story of today, you know, tell tell a story about uh, look at American Sniper, uh, the movie that's out right now that Clint Eastwood put out. That's a story, and if you look at what they're showing on the promos on television, they're they're not showing a lot of things blowing up, although that's part of the story. And for real, it mm-hmm. really happened in in war. They're not showing him, you know, as a sniper taking out person after person after person. The military stuff is part of that. Anybody who likes uh, really great military drama will probably enjoy that. No, they're showing him uh, talking to his wife on a telephone. A young man, a young woman, and she's pregnant or has a baby uh, in different yeah. scenes. And the uh, an explosion going off and the phone dropping. And everybody is going to identify right, that. They're oh, my God. Oh, you know, that's what they're showing. They're showing him... Uh, to the breaking point where he's just been a warrior for too long and seen too much, where tears are flowing down his face. And that's a human story. And these are contemporaries. Look, I don't know well, how many of these uh, are in college, I, I, but I deal with a you lot of younger it? people who... No, I haven't seen it yet. Have, have you seen it, then? Okay, yeah, because I'm, I'm going to wait to come down on the DVD. I don't, I don't trust Hollywood enough to put out a, 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 a... to spend whatever amount it is to go see a movie now to, to go no, <laughs> and, and watch a... You know, well, yeah, that's true. That, that, that'll help. Uh, but I do want to um, go ahead and finish that you, point, and then I do want to bring Jesse back chair. in. And we also have uh, we also have another caller who'd like to get in as well. Uh, so area code 917, I do see uh, in the queue, we'll uh, bring in as well. We'll want to bring uh, Jesse back in. And we also want to make sure that we give uh, some more time uh, to Kelly as well. So what was that, Dan? No, I, all I was saying is that uh, Clint Eastwood uh, brought an extra chair. Um, but uh, now, Kelly, if he's still on the line, why don't you bring in uh, one of our other callers or something? Maybe uh, Stephanie can respond yeah. to them. Right, because I know Kelly had to step away. And Kelly, uh, just just you know, speak up when when, when you're back if you're hearing, but then have to be on the other line. But let's go ahead and uh, bring in Jesse. Jesse, thank you very much uh, for holding. How are you tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Um, I just have a couple comments. I think the best way to enact real change and hope in this country across all the age ranges, is for the people to withdraw their consent at every level. People say they want a revolution without bullets flying. Well, the only way you're going to do that is withdrawing your consent, all of us, with unity and strength in numbers, you know. So I just kind of would like to get your maybe your feedback on that. When you're talking ahead, about withdrawing uh, consent... Withdrawing our consent. You know, well, let one year, guess the... What's that? I'm I was going to say ahead. first, yeah, yeah. Well, first we'll have uh, Steph answer uh, or make comment to that, and then uh, go ahead, Dan, and then anyone else you'd like to come in uh, first. But let's let have uh, Steph do it. Go ahead, Steph. Sure. Well, uh, withdrawing consent can mean a lot of different things, and it would require the mobilization of many, many people. I think, and we would need a significantly unifying factor for something like that to really take hold. And unfortunately, and maybe fortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, we don't at present have that kind of momentum in any specific area to really push for that. I mean, I'm in North Texas, and being from Connecticut, it's you hear Texas talking about secession or people joking about secession in Texas. But even, like, you don't realize the magnitude of how serious they are sometimes <laughs> when you talk to certain groups. 
and that's with a group of people who really do feel very strongly about the strength of Texas and their ability to kind of self-govern and that kind of thing. And there's still not really adequate momentum or kind of a base in reality for that to come to fruition. And that's dealing with a much smaller group that has a whole lot of pride in just being from Texas. So to bring that to a more national scale, I think would require, and you could say unfortunately, would require a much steeper descent as a whole with our political system before we really saw that kind of thing take effect. No, I have to say, uh, can, I, can, I, can I put my hand up? Can I put my hand up? Please. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, yeah. yeah, sorry, by the way, we're doing mad science oh. and stuff tonight and I had to help somebody find a tool. Anyway, so secession oh, no thing, okay? Hold, hold, hold on, Kelly. We, we've actually got a couple of, uh, a uh, couple of folks on the line here, so we'll we'll bring it back. We got plenty of time as long as uh, we don't get well, shut out at uh, high so. midnight tonight. What high midnight? I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll definitely yeah stuff. we'll definitely get get back to it. Uh, but we've got um, we've got Kelly and then Jesse. I'm sorry. We have uh, Stephanie and then Jesse. Then we'll bring it back to you, Kelly. And then we have another caller we're going to bring in. And I know Dan wants to make comment too. So we'll. We'll get that. So go ahead, uh, Jesse. You're going to uh, do your uh, counter remark, and then uh, Dan. Then we'll bring it to you, Kelly. And then uh, nine one seven. Uh, we'll be bringing you in. So go ahead. Yeah, I wasn't thinking like in terms of secession. I was thinking more in terms of in smaller ways, smaller steps, withdrawing our consent in massive numbers. Let's say of a hundred million or so. I, I think the unifying factor could be we could unite around liberty, our rights being stripped away almost on a daily basis from legislators. That could be Sure, but I'm not practice. suggesting secession. I was using it more kind of as okay. an example in terms of scope because it's you're looking at a much smaller group of people when you look at kind of withdrawing consent, so to speak, from the union in terms of secession. It's more kind of a metaphor. But um it's like I see where you're going and I, I like the idea to advocate for liberty and that kind of thing, but I try to look at things in what I think is a pragmatic way, and I just I don't see the numbers and enough outraged people to really kind of get a strong effect from that, to get people to have to pay attention to it, to mobilize more people to do it. I think we'd have to kind of decline further and lose more liberty before you had people really rise up in the numbers you would need for that to make an impact. I fear you're right. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> Okay, go ahead, uh, Kelly and then Dan. Um, we have a big thing here in the uh, state capital of California, Sacramento, tomorrow. There's been going to be several counties turning in their declaration to um, the power seat there, basically saying, we're done, we want out. And that will be, it started with Siskiyou, where I'm at, which is almost as large as Massachusetts. And then we have uh, Modoc, that's now we're bigger than Massachusetts. We had Tehama County and Glen County, and there's a couple more coming online. And we're bigger than Connecticut and Massachusetts combined. And we have like one or two reps in the state house. Our goal eventually is to sue the state to get us more representation, which is going to be a huge impact. And maybe the way Maine came out of Massachusetts was they said, um, they sent legislative complaint, hey, look, here we are in Maine. We don't really have any representation. Massachusetts says, oh, whoops, sorry about that. Yeah, come on down, send your guys down. 
They convinced the people, then Maine became their own state. I don't know if that's going to happen here, but I am seeing in this rural area um, that the large numbers are actually there. Whether it'll actually happen, at least I think we're going to get representation, better representation, one per county would be nice. Mm -hmm. um, we have one state house senator for 930,000 people. We have one rep for over 960,000 people. I mean, this is a joke. We are not yeah. being represented. So that movement, if you will, it has gotten a lot of uh, attention um, in, in, in the pragmatic sense. You know, Stephanie, I appreciate you pointing this out because you do have a lot of com common sense here. We're just kind of an anomaly that the people are actually moving to do something, whether will they come around state or not is another question. But um, it's it it is moving. It's just kind of interesting. Thanks. Go ahead, Dan. Um, I know you're okay. Comment you want to give. Well, it, we're talking about withdrawing cons consent, but I, I have to say that uh, in my experience, people will fight against something only until they feel that they've stopped one thing. And Stephanie was mentioning a uh, a, a um, unifying event. Um, so we, 9/11 happened, and we unified, and we fought against it, and we did something, and then, okay, good, that's done. I mean, that's not exactly the same as fighting for something, and that's really what I try and get people to do, and it, with some success, is to fight for something. This evening, I had a choice, and this was wonderful. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, I would wait weeks and months between events, between meetings, meetings I'd go to. There'd be five or six people, if that, and it's the same people, and we just talked. But tonight, there were meetings within a 40, 50-mile radius of me, seven different meetings, three I was supposed to go to, and I can't, I, I haven't cloned myself. People have accused me of that. And I, I went to the one because my heat isn't working in the car, and, and it's cold here, and uh, my wife's car broke yesterday, and I had to f try and fix that. So I went to the one that's local. And we had a big turnout in this, just in my township. And we're not just fighting against the mini status, the petty corrupt that are here. Because it's really just the same as Washington or, or your state capital. It's just in a smaller scale. We're fighting for something. And tonight was about, we're going to be registering people to vote. And we're going to be getting people to run for office. There are open offices in this off-year election. And there's some important ones for us locally. And we have now an almost complete slate. We have a complete slate, but it won't be complete till we have it on Democratic and Republican because you know what? If you're looking at the, the, the leadership of either party, I haven't got much use for any of them. But if you're looking at the rank and file, I have friends who are Democrats. They're not bad people. And I have friends who are Republicans. And the honest ones who are willing to work hard and do the right job for us, they're willing. I'm willing to vote for them. So we're going to have a complete slate, and uh, we've we figured out a whole lot of important tactical things that are necessary to get on the ballot. And we've already taken back one of the three township supervisor spots uh, by one vote we won over Agenda 21. That was the outrage, but it's now transformed into we're fighting for something, what we want. And if you listen to what Kelly had just said, he's not saying that they're fighting against lack of representation. They're fighting for representation. And we really can take this back. I, I have to say that I think we have enough people 
You need 3%? We've got more than that. The, the rest of them, most of them are not going to be leaders. They're going to follow. Once they see that other people are marching, some will join in any march that you see. There are some people there just because they want to go along with a crowd. What's more, if we're able, I shouldn't say if, when we're able to start enacting the common sense things that we need to do in this country to, to, to cut statism back, to, to remove the government's overweening control over every aspect of our lives, and that frees up individuals to create all this value that we're talking about, People are going to see something positive for themselves. I can start a business. He started a business. He's making money. Maybe the person doesn't want to start a business, but now, hey, I can get a better job. Or, hey, I can stop being unemployed. Geez, you know, back when uh, Reagan was in office, and he wasn't perfect by any means, but in the early 80s, uh, I had uh, my own business. This one I dropped out of school. And... Uh, I was working full-time, had a part-time job. My wife was a manager of a big store, and, and occasionally we'd have time to go spend some money. We'd go out. People would approach us in the mall with job applications. Would, would you fill out a job? We really need people. Can you imagine a, an America where things are that good that you're not only doing something you enjoy, making good money at it, spending the fruits of your labor on whatever the heck you want to spend it on, but that you have opportunities Every single day or week that come up that say, you know, maybe I want to try that. You can make money doing that, too. That might be more fun. And with that, gentlemen, uh, we do have uh, another caller like uh, to bring on. And uh, it's good to have uh, him back uh, calling into the show. And that's our friend Joe. Thank you very much, Joe, for calling to the show. How are you? Very good. Fine, Robert. It's a pleasure to be on again. Uh, I wanted to know if uh, Stephanie was still on the line. I am uh, still here. Steph? Uh, hi, Stephanie. Uh, my name is Joseph. And first of all, uh, I want to uh, sincerely commend you for uh, your work and your effort and your dedication uh, to uh, our country. And uh, I think Turning Point USA uh, definitely has a great platform that can definitely advance uh that can definitely advance uh, change that we need in this country uh, by enabling and empowering and educating uh, the youth, uh, which is uh, very important in voting, uh, because there's many young uh, Americans across the country that I don't think quite have the grasp of really knowing what's going on. And I think a lot of uh, young people tend to uh, believe the first thing they hear and believe what the mainstream media is saying is accurate. And so I think uh, through Turning Point USA, uh, it just gives uh, these youth something to look forward to and for them to make a difference and uh, in helping their country by being a part of something meaningful, by being a part of uh, an organization that uh, will allow them to... Um, make positive change in this country. So uh, once again, I think you have an excellent program. And uh, I think if uh, more programs that were similar to yours uh, were around, uh, I think hypothetically we would have a lot more educated uh, young voters today. Well, thank you for your support. We appreciate it. Okay. Hey, uh, I want to give Stephanie a compliment here because there's, something other people may not have missed. Now, when she was talking about reaching the youth, 
she gets them talking about them. And then she engages in conversation and blah, blah, blah. And from what I'm hearing, I'm hearing a lot of silence, which is a really good thing because obviously she's a good listener. Not like some of us on Barge Logic who commit the ninth, uh, the eighth deadly sin, which I'll have to tell, <laughs> I'll have to tell Stephanie that, that the eighth deadly sin on Barge Logic is uh, hogging the microphone. <laughs> so that's a. Uh, I wanted to throw out something else that you might. Um, I like to use questions, and sometimes it gets people. You know, like how Morpheus trained Neo in the movie Matrix? He constantly asks questions. Stunning. So here's a question for you. It's kind of a stumper. It's something I've been studying lately. Uh, do you know who Langton was? I'm sorry? Have you, have you heard of Langton? No. That's the failure of our public system. Uh, most people don't. He has affected positively over 100 nations and we hardly know who he is. Lincoln was the Archbishop of Canterbury who penned the Magna Carta. He negotiated peace between bad King John at the end of a five-year revolution to which the barons went to war, the king were done. And the Magna Carta was the first time in modern history where the law was placed above the king. So the idea of a constitution, the law above the king, well, we can thank Lincoln for doing that. And then and it took till it was 1215, and then uh, by the way, we're coming up on the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. But the and are you going to call me law, again, Dan? And are you going to call me again, Kelly, and wish me a happy Magna Carta Day like last year? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you were the first and only person who's ever wished me a happy Magna Carta Day. Go ahead. <laughs> yes, because the law was now above the king, and so over 100 nations adopted this policy: let's get rid of our king and let's have a rule of law, and let's have representation, you know, parliament, etc. And so Langton, um, arguably, um, was even more influential than Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, John Jay, Washington, Adams, because they followed in his footsteps to uh, many a degree to get the law about the king. And so it's it's a very important piece of, of, of history, because if you think of the world beforehand, it was kings and you know, good king, bad king, uh, what's the law of the day, and does he feel like enforcing it or not, or was, is he going to let his buddies go free? And we have a beautiful Don't system here. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I want to read a quote to you here from somebody I just saw this the other day. It was so stunning, and it nailed it. I'm going to ask which president, just take a guess, which president said this statement? This is, again, about the law above the king. Um, uh, to maintain... I'm sorry, that was my helper falling. All right. To maintain the ascendancy of the Constitution over the lawmaking majority is the great and essential point on which the success of the American system must depend. Unless that ascendancy can be preserved, the necessary consequence must be that the laws will influence... I'm sorry that the laws will supersede the Constitution. And finally, the will of the executive, by influence of its patronage, will supersede the laws. So which, which president said that? Do you want us to guess? <laughs> yeah, anybody. Yeah. Madison. Nope. Nope. Later. Jefferson? Way later. Later? 
Yeah, much later. It was before uh, Lincoln. It was John C. Calhoun. When was he president of the United States? I can't. I got to look that up. <laughs> I know, he's he's got, he's got the quote. That doesn't necessarily have to have the date, but there's the quote. Yeah. That's important, right? But, <laughs> but what's stunning about about this is when you look at the history and the pain that the colonials went through. They said, "Hey, we're done with this arbitrary law." You know, they said to King George, "He has flooded our seas, ravaged our coast, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people." Um, obviously, he was bad. So they put the law above the government, and from the pain they suffered and the study of the history, they realized we've got to put together a constitution and lest we forget and allow future generations to have the same pain. That's exactly what they did. And so I suppose if you have a couple of history buffs from college, uh, you know, you might think about asking them about Langton, uh, some of these other people who, who made these stunning Quotes. You know, you bring up an interesting point, Kelly. Uh, maybe instead of a unifying event, maybe what we're looking for, and I, I know people look, like leaders, is a unifying personality. Somebody who has um, all the gifts that an Obama or a Clinton or a Reagan or uh, either Roosevelt had in terms of uh, being well-spoken, being very, very intelligent, having great charisma, but more than that, somebody for a change well, thanks, who man, actually... Man, I, I appreciate that now. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, somebody who actually has charisma. <laughs> I mean, rather... Oh, You have to have humility, too. I'm out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. No, somebody yeah. who has the character um, to, to express the... I mean, let's face it. People want to be told what to do most of the time. Yes, they want to do their own thing. But not when it comes to the big things in life. They want to know those things are, are hard questions. Philosophers spend mm -hmm. entire lifetimes studying all the other philosophers and then spending decades just trying to come up with an answer. And it's very few of them that actually do come up with an answer. And it's mostly derivative. So it's not like Reagan came up with anything new. It's not like Lincoln came up with anything new. Um, even the guy who wrote the Magna Carta... It's not entirely new, the, the thesis that's there. What it is is something that was expressed in such a, a perfect way and with such force of character. Look, I don't know much about uh, Langton. I, I should find more, and, and yes, Kelly, I will look into it. Um, <laughs> but I do know that for him to have accomplished what he did, he had to have tremendous force of character. Otherwise, nobody would have listened to him. He had to well, be an amazing right. negotiator. Right, he convinced a king to voluntarily accept Magna Carta. After Magna Carta, King John, bad King John, as English history displays, went to the Pope, added an old, then he went after the barons. It was another war. But Langton convinced the a king in the, in the 1220s to voluntarily accept it, and the world was changed. I mean, these are stunning history facts that have been hidden, you know, like the right of petition is another one. Our public system has failed, and I, um, well, I, I want to turn it over to Stephanie because I'm I'm committing I'm committing the eighth right now. But yes. do you do you use any of these history things people didn't know or? You know, I tend to stay away from it when I talk to students, just because 
when you're trying to attract them to the cause, which is a large part of what Turning Point does, is attract these new students and kind of let, let the bug bite them and kind of allow them to steer in their own direction, is you can't bring up things that, and I'm I'm going to say that they're bored by, but understand that I mean that as somebody who took a course on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for fun. So I, I love history. Uh-huh. I love all that stuff. But that does largely sound like they're... fun, actually. What's wrong with oh, that? So Wait a minute. That's not, was... that sounds like a, that sounds <laughs> like a okay. good class. That's, Don't I would think that's that. fun. <laughs> yeah. Stephanie, Stephanie, are you telling us that We're the college here. students today are not interested in in college? They're not interested in studying? They're not interested in things that they don't think are relevant. And history has become a subject that they don't think is relevant. Wow. That and science, real, too, I suppose. So true. Science is just awful because they started putting numbers in it. And if you have a political science-oriented brain, you can't take regular science or math. But wow. <laughs> they just they don't see it as something pertinent. It doesn't are make sense to them. It can't affect them right now. Well, are there any subjects in school? I mean, we're going to leave off, uh, you know, partying and, and all the good stuff that, that young people want to do anyway. But are there any subjects in school that are rigorous, that are disciplined and, and uh, you know, full of truth that are popular? Because that might be a good start. Anything that, you know, that every the kids school, are really into? Every school does something different. And by the time you're in college, you're picking a major based usually on your interest. So I can't make so much a broad generalization in that direction, but I can take it the other direction for you and tell you that women's studies and gender studies and other degrees that pretty much specialize in unemployment are <laughs> appearing <laughs> are appearing in colleges wow. across the country and people are taking them and they're making that their major. So college is kind of become less of a place to study and learn more about different things and more of a place to learn about your tolerance and be progressive and understand, which really lands you in the unemployment line or the social security line or whatever handout line is popular in your specified area. So let me bring this up. Let, let me interrupt for just a second, folks. Uh, and, and tell you about being surrounded by liberals. Now, I was, uh, you know, as I said, I went back to my 30s, early 30s, I guess, and I was, uh, my major was political science, but my two minors, see, I, when I went, I almost minored in theology and philosophy, but my academic advisor said, well, if you're looking for careers in a field, you don't want to take theology and philosophy as minors. And so, I, you know, if you're going to go, so... I ended up minoring. I did a double minor in peace studies, and because I'll think about uh, getting uh, a master's or, in diplomacy, or go to uh, in environmental studies. Because you know I'm a tree hugger. But um, so I mean, I'm surrounded by liberals. It's unbelievable. <laughs> well, well, Robert, this is a really amazing thing to learn about you that you were like going to take theology. Is that why every now and then the urge comes out to have uh, the Bard's Logic Gospel Hour? Yeah, which, so which I I, as I was going to say earlier, I find so ironic because I'm the pagan of the group here. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, but no. Well, to, to, to go to sidetrack just for a second, as as we sometimes do, as the organic nature of the show here. Uh, but no, I mean, I was always even as even as a young one, 
was fascinated um, by theology. You know, just fascinated by the the subject, and you know, uh, you know, the study of religion, things of that nature. Uh, so, you know, when I was in college, it was almost a, a natural fit for me. Uh, and, and what, you know, step right up, you, you go to college and you take courses that you're interested in. I mean, I mean if I was taking four more classes, I would have graduated with four minors. Um, you know, but, you know, I end up not, uh, I'm not doing that. But, you know, it's, it's always been an interest of mine. Oh, I could talk for hours about theology. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Taking, um, uh double major in physics and Russian with a minor in psychology and uh, certain three-letter uh, agencies were trying to recruit me and that was the first time I dropped out. And uh, Yeah, those were the days. So you're bringing back some memories for us, Dust. You can also tell that we are getting close to Bard's Logic After Dark, uh, which uh, is what we, we call our extended period lovingly uh, sometimes because you know, we we definitely you know we had the serious discussions, you know, for a couple hours, and then it, in the third hour, which if, unless we get you know unceremoniously cut off, which sometimes happens uh, with uh, a technical issue, well, let's hope not tonight. Um, but then you know we kind of you know go off top a little bit. So you could you know, we only have 20 minutes before Bard's logic after dark, so we're trying to swing towards that. But Steph, you are bringing us back to our our college days or the college dropout days or whatever. So that's good. I'm so happy happy to help you all out with your nostalgia tonight. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. <laughs> so, yeah, bring, bring us back to try to make us feel, you know, younger since you're probably the, the, the youngest one on the line here. So. <laughs> I'd like to ask Stephanie a question also. Certainly. When you're on these college campuses, uh, how many veterans – you run across of military, whether it's active duty combat or not. I know that there's a lot of young men and women who are serving and they get out and they're in their early 20s, most of them, um, and a a lot of them can go to school on the GI Bill and they want to improve their Mm -hmm. lives. And these are kids uh, who have young people, kids to me, who have discipline, who have uh, uh, learned how to show up, how to do things, how to work hard. Um, how to take orders, how to think for themselves in a lot of cases. How do they respond to the progressive uh, attitudes on campus? And are they interested in the message that uh, that uh, Turning Point is, is putting out? You know, I haven't really quantified how many of them were veterans, but I, I can tell you I tend to gravitate towards those people. I don't know what it is about my life. Even when I took courses in college, I would find the older person in the classroom who looked like a grouchy military vet and I would sit next to them because I thought that they were smarter than the other college kids in the room. I was usually right. And I find those same people kind of on campus, you can usually tell by how they carry themselves and they're immediately, yeah, I know, these kids are driving me crazy. Yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. But they're so focused really on finishing school and getting out because their friends have gone to school Their friends are already in the career phase of their lives, and they're kind of more just eager to join their friends and kind of return to normalcy, if you want to talk about it that way, than participate Hmm. in college activism. Hmm. Good point. I'm just thinking, though, that somebody who's already taken the oath, which I've taken a number of times in my life and has no expiration date, 
to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Somebody who willingly takes that oath might be a potent source of uh, assistance and aid to whatever you're trying to do there, whatever specific programs, whatever, uh, you know, if there's rallies, petitions, trying to get... uh, a balance and the speakers that come onto campus trying to rebut the other side uh, with discipline because that's one of the things I, I know for a fact having been a progressive community organizing rabble rousing young jerk at one time in my life um, I know that they they uh, are all for tolerance and and uh, acceptance and uh, you know don't offend anyone unless the other side disagrees with them in which case all those rules go out the window and they're rude as hell and that's part of the program that move on and the rest of them use um, it takes a great deal of discipline not to respond not to 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 just bite at that that worm that's dangling in front of you and uh, you know prove to everyone that you're a jerk just like they're saying uh, you have to be able to stand there and take it and calmly, and nothing infuriates them more than somebody who can smile at them when they're being insulted and refute them with in, in positive, assertive, and I'm not talking wimpy or just quiet, but positive, assertive manner with facts. They have no way to respond to the facts because they're true. Well, part of what Turning Point tries to do, at least especially myself when I talk to students on campus, is teach them how they can have these conversations productively. And sometimes that means through watching us have these conversations. I was at a university in North Texas where a somewhat large woman came up to my table when we were talking about Obamacare, and the first thing she said to me, huffily, she's very angry that I was there, it was amusing, was that Obamacare cured her diabetes, it cured her heart problems, but that she'd also lost a significant amount of weight. And you get into these conversations and it comes down to, well, maybe your weight loss had something to do with it. Do you think maybe that piece of paper wasn't so effective as maybe your new positive life choices? And They don't see it that way. They're never going to see it that way. And you could spin your argument all day and try to get them to understand your point of view. But what's really important is to have the discussions like you're saying so that other students can watch it happen. When mm-hmm. you have that progressive come up and they yell at you and they freak out, you're probably not going to change their mind. You're more than likely not going to change their mind. But what you've done now is you've shown that these discussions can be had. Because part of the loss of critical thinking being really taught for what it is and its value is we've lost the ability to have productive discussions. We don't want to speak to each other in a normal tone. We want to yell at each other. We don't want to bring out facts. We want to talk about emotion. And it, you can't get anywhere that way. You're right. Well, Stephanie, I have to again Perfect compliment you because... Perfect logic. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I've, I've come to discover it took me, you know, until I got in my 40s, but one of the most valuable character attributes to have is responding well. Responding well to life, to circumstances, to people, to whatever. And it is a great, valuable asset. So I, I could imagine a scenario where, and I've had these in college with progressive and socialism, blah, blah, blah. And they get right in your face and they're just point blank mean. <laughs> but I suppose um, if you're having a discourse, you know, a nice discussion with some, well, you're trying to be nice anyway, 
and the progressive girls like, you know, who won? The listeners, because they were changed seeing how you responded. It does something else too, Kelly. It, it shows uh, people that they don't have to back down to bullies. You know, we, we're all familiar with the uh, apocryphal tale, and, and a lot of us have seen it in their, our own lives, of a bully on the schoolyard who is picking on everybody until someone steps up and just stands up to them. And mm-hmm. provided that they can do that without getting pounded into the ground, then everybody sees that and realizes that the bully has no power. Unless we're well, willing to give at, it to you know, Right, well, you can look yeah, at what the left does. For you. Sure. When the left gets into these discussions, and I, I say the left kind of loosely because you do have your good and bad on both sides, but the left gets into these discussions and it's you're Islamophobic, you're homophobic, you're racist, you're bigoted, you're whatever name they can throw at you. And everybody on the right is so focused on not getting called these names that they stop having real discussions. And when you ignore mm. that they're calling you these names and you actually put out information, the bystanders can see that. The right is so busy playing defense that they never play offense. And that's because we're Mm -hmm. constantly being thrown these personal attacks of racist, bigot, homophobe, sexist, whatever popular word it is, from the people who claim to be tolerant. Yeah. (laughs) uh, I I, I, I can tolerate anything, but you're intolerant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Real quick, Kelly, I did want to to get this real quick, Kelly. I did want to get this this question out. Uh, And I do think we've got about uh, 10 minutes before the uh, extended period uh, and so uh, just to let you know that the first two hours is live, and then the third hour uh, is uh, still part of the show, uh, but for folks to listen in to the extended period, uh, call in at 347-945-7428. Uh, if not, then your audio will be uh, cut off if, if you're not called in. Uh, so do that within the next uh, 10 minutes and then we'll get to the extended period. However, the entire show, including the, the last uh, hour or whatever the extended period ends up being, uh, will still be on the archive. Uh, so uh, definitely uh, check that out. But, however, if you know you can't make it, we appreciate you coming on uh, tonight. And just check us out uh, next week as we are here every Wednesday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Just to look forward uh, to you coming back on. And, of course, all of the episodes uh, of Bard's Logic uh, has been and will continue to be a uh, podcast for yours and uh, your friends' download uh, later after the show. But now let's get to my question. Do you ever you know, speak to uh, students who, you know, when they're talking to you, Stephanie, you know that they're, you know, they already have that liberal bend, they already have that liberal mindset. But do you ever have that aha moment from them after they've actually taken some time to sit down or stand or whatever? and actually talk with you and then hear you out and then have that aha moment, like, oh, my gosh, wow, you you, you make some great points. Uh, you could wait right. All of the time. You hear it all of the time. The best example would probably be in talking about taxes. One of our weeks during our last program was what we called No Free Lunch. And it was essentially the idea that no matter what they tell you was free, it's not really free. And then we would get down to the breakdowns of the different things that you pay in your day-to-day life. And I use Connecticut frequently as an example, especially of what not to do. 
because I'm so familiar with it having grown up there. And I would tell them, you know, $3.40 of a pack of cigarettes up there is a tax. $0.40 of a gallon of gas is a tax. Your tax on your car, your tax on your property, your sales tax, and I believe it's Virginia, I could be wrong on the state, they want to tax you for collecting rainwater on your property. Rainwater, the government doesn't own that. And when you get into all those different things with these students, like, wait a minute, what? And then you pull out, my favorite tool is the waste book that comes out every year. I'm like, oh, yeah, did you know $10,000 went to watching salt grass grow? And then what? Excuse me. Or $3 million went to studying why lesbians tend to be overweight, and it's, excuse me, they spent my money on what? And as soon as you can point these out in a relatable way, like, here's your money, this is the nonsense it's going to, they have that aha moment. They click. They're, wait a minute, it's not just caring for the poor, and it's, no, no, it's really not. If they were using this money just to care for the poor, we probably really wouldn't have poor. And they wow. see that and they relate to it. And it makes so much sense to them. It, but it all comes back to here's your life, here's what you're paying, here's what they're doing with it. If you're not talking about them, you lose them. Wow, about them, yeah. You know, the oh, uh, race thing is really one of those bizarre accusations that didn't work with the uh, House and Senate this last election. But I, I recently had a lady, I mean, I'm kind of, I want to give you a tool. Okay. So, um, it's walking on some street and there's two young guys and this girl and she's black and stuff and she's all upset and I'm just kind of they were just talking and kind of hey are you racist? I said I only like people to bleed red. Oh cool you know. And later I saw her working <laughs> subway a little chat and all. But there's another thing that if somebody called me racist I am going to get furious, personally offended and let me tell you why. My great 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 grandfather fought the Union in the Civil War, he took a 50 caliber bullet in his hip. He lived. He had to go back and farm. How do you farm? You run a plow behind a horse. you have any idea how much pain he went through to provide for his family after the war? To do what? To help free the slaves. That, to me, is very offensive to what my great-great-grandfather has done. And I would suspect, if you look in your lineage, wouldn't be surprised if you find somebody uh, from Kinetic that was in the union, and that would—I I think that would shut that down. But I'm off the boat, Italians. <laughs> I mean, if you want to talk about racism, it's not something that I look at and I'm like, "Oh no, I can't believe you called me a racist." It's I turn around, and, you know, I hate everybody equally. I come at it from kind of a different approach. You love everybody that bleeds red. I hate everybody equally. It's—I'm a cynic. <laughs> 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 You can't, I try not to let it come at me so much in that direction as I try to turn it and say there really isn't any group of people that hasn't faced another group of people hating them, enslaving them, treating them horribly or something else during any period of time in the entire history of the world. Every situation is different. No two situations were exactly the same. But there's nobody who hasn't had discrimination in their line. There's nobody who hasn't been judged based on their background. It's, I sit down with my grandparents who were Italian when it was horrible to be Italian, and I listen to the stories and the things that people called them and the way that they treated them. And I mean, I have no understanding of that today. Like, I walk around, and I'm like, yeah, I'm Italian. It's awesome. But it's it's a group of people that were being discriminated against for their heritage. Sure, it was different than slavery. Absolutely. I'm not equating the two at all. But to think that 
one can only be racist or discriminatory so long as it fits the current popular mantra or the current popular media telling of it is completely false. There's all different ways that people could hate other people and to allow somebody to control the narrative so completely is one of the ways that we kind of just give up the argument. So what are you going to run for office? Because you sound, you remind me of Ronald Reagan, (laughs) the Teflon coating and really good diverge, uh, you know, deflecting of these. And and you do it in a very graceful way. I'm just like, when are you going to run for office? (laughs) I am never running for office. I do my own podcast. I do other radio interview type things. I love media. That's my niche. That's what I want to do. I can't run for office mm-hmm. because it would just I'm one press conference away from just being thrown out of the country if I run for office. <laughs> <laughs> Tell you what though. Uh, well, and, and that, that's that, a good that segue a, uh, into a to my next question will... is well, real, real, real quick we'll, we'll bring I just want to uh bring this up then and then and then we'll get okay. to us. It's that, that's a question I want to ask is, is how is the uh, other media uh, whether it's liberal media or other conservative medias, uh, how are they uh, with your group, with your organization? They have been in, I'm trying to look for the right word here. You actually stumped me. Congratulations. <laughs> Fox has had Charlie on many, many times. I've done a lot of interviews with groups like yours and shows and panels, especially on Blog Talk Radio, who are very excited mm-hmm about what we do. Media has been very happy, at least at the level that I've dealt with them, to help push us and talk about us and support us. We've gotten national media attention. I haven't seen anything really bad come of it, but we're also a very young group. We only recently turned two years old. It was When I got hired, there were eight field staff, and I just left training, and right. there's somewhere around 20 field staff now. So we're we're growing rapidly, and I expect that as we continue to grow and expand our reach, We'll hear more from different areas of the media, but even groups like Mm -hmm. YAL, YAF, and the CRs and Leadership Institute don't really get a whole lot of media attention unless they go looking for it. Mm -hmm. What I was going to say is that uh, your unwillingness to run for office is one of the marks I look at in somebody who I want to run for office. I say the same thing. They shouldn't want to hold the office. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, and there's another no. point which uh, Kelly touched on as well. I think you're both right. If somebody is going to lie and attack you, I mean, if they're telling you the truth about you, if they're saying that something about you that's true, the only thing you can do is admit it and try and correct it if it's something that needs correcting or be proud of it if it doesn't need correcting. But if they're lying, if they're calling you a racist, let's say, I've used both of those approaches depending on who's around. If it's one person or a very small group and you know there's nobody in the audience, I tend to go with Kelly's initial uh, method, which is I, I get pissed off. Um, like I've told people before, the very first best friend I ever lost in my life died of sickle cell, and we weren't even teenagers yet. And, and I just... Uh, that that just cheeses me off when somebody says that about me and they don't know a damn thing about me and it's such a lie but on the other hand if there's an audience um the reagan approach the the deflection with humor there is no defense against humor i mean if you can make the person who's calling you a name look like a complete jackass there's they're done nothing else they say matters 
And as we, the silence is what you, is that, is that soaks in. <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's something that's, it's happening more and more, Bob, and it's really, really unnerving, I have to tell you. Um, it's, it's really but, what? Yeah. You know, it's are, are we talking about are we talking about Bob the NSA guy again? No, no, no. Uh, yeah, oh, hi, Bob. This Bob, me, Bob. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, uh, for Stephanie, um, for for uh, just a little bit of inside baseball on on what we mean when we say Bob the NSA guy, we acknowledge that the government is listening to everybody because they've acknowledged it, and we acknowledge that certain of us, and I'm sure you're on that list, have uh, worked hard enough to rate special attention. So it's not just a machine that's listening to us with Echelon. It's, it's paying attention to keywords that might come up through its voice recognition and flagging, and it goes into a huge file that maybe somebody ever looks at if there's enough connections to actual known bad guys like us. Um, no, we're, we're, we're special. We're the elite. We're the ones who have... Who have stuck our thumb in their eye and twisted it and said, what are you going to do about that? So we know that they're listening, and I like to to personify. I like to make it human. So I say it's Bob, Bob the NSA guy. He's He's got his earphones on right now, and he's, he's typing t- Hi, Bob. frantic notes. Hi, Bob. <laughs> and we don't dislike Bob because unlike Bob's bosses, who are a bunch of fat-headed jerks, write that down, Bob. I made it simple. Um, Bob himself or herself is just a person who took that oath the same as we did, same as some of us did, I did, and many of us, the same a person who's trying to serve his country or her country, somebody who's trying to, to do the right thing and earn a living. And as long as Bob's on our side, then we've, we're happy with Bob. And our side doesn't mean you have to be loyal to any one of us. It just means you have to be loyal to the concept of constitutional Americanism, which, by the way, um, they did just come out with a, a poll today, and it's actually a pretty decently uh, run poll in terms of methodology that shows the vast majority of the military uh, really, 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 really doesn't like Obama, which means his idea of replacing all the top military leaders with those who would pass a litmus test of being willing to order their men to fire on American civilians uh, to disarm them uh, won't work Mm -hmm. because the rank-and-file military won't follow, just like the rank-and-file police in New York City not only turned their back on de Blasio, and that was spontaneous at the hospital, and it became organized without any organization. No one's telling anyone to do it. Uh, everywhere he shows up, the police turn their back. He shows up at a funeral, at a speech, they turn their back on him. But they've done more than that. The police in New York City, and there's mostly good and a few bad, like any other group, they are doing their jobs. They're going after murderers and rapists and robbers and thieves and total, you know, bad dudes. Good. Well, I wish, I wish they'd go after. I wish they'd go after to Bob, the NSA well, guy. By the way, here's a quick little joke. So I was talking to somebody once, and he, he's a Christian, and he was like, he knew Bob, Bob was listening, and so he says, you know, Bob, Jesus is very loving, and he loves even you. It's mm-hmm. true, he does. I, I mean, I suppose. Even not you. <laughs> yeah. But what I, just to complete a thought, what they're doing in New York City... And this is not to be confused with me, Bob. <laughs> no, not at all. What they're doing in New York City, the police officers, is yeah, not only turning their backs and continuing to do their jobs when it comes to serious crimes that uh, hurt people. They're ignoring all of the petty, 
progressive regulations that they're supposed to enforce. They're not going after people selling loose cigarettes. If somebody jaywalks, they just, hey, look, you didn't cause a car crash. You didn't dart across the street irrationally. You're not a danger to yourself or others. I'm not writing a ticket. 60% in one week, the number of offenses dropped by 60%. They're just not stopping people. They're not bothering them, which is really awesome. And the courts in New York City are empty, and the revenues, and this is the big part, you want to hurt them, hit them in the wallet. The revenues are down tremendously. So de Blasio doesn't have so much money now to go after the rest of us. Mm. Well, that's good to hear. I was getting kind of, you know, tired of all that stuff, you know, going on with, uh, you know, all the, the, the protests and, you know, things going on with. Uh, it just seems like there's just a wave of, you know, this you know anti-law enforcement and any you know police officers going on. It was just well, you're in my area. I mean, as you pointed out, Banner, they're just trying to you know, and most of them are, are are good folks, and and now it's all over the news, of course. And I mean, now everything, you know, every time you turn around on the news, you see about you know a, a cop has to open fire on somebody because they weren't, uh, you know, doing as uh, they should do. Well, in in this area, uh, we support um, police officers who do their jobs properly. We don't support uh, thugs with badges. We don't support murderers and rapists who have have the color of law behind them. Um, But they're very few, thankfully. Uh, Most of uh, the officers are just like most of everybody. They're pretty decent folks, maybe a little bit more decent than most because they're willing to put their lives on the line to protect the rest of us and and catch bad guys. But in, in this area... We've had a number of rallies recently in bitter cold where we're getting hundreds, in some cases thousands of people showing up. And the amazing thing about this is that it's not getting a lot of press coverage here, but it's getting press coverage in the smaller areas, I mean the smaller parts of media, gets picked up by the foreign press. The foreign press is running with this. They are showing clearly what's going on, especially the English. And then the... Mainstream media in this country has very little choice but to at least report on what is being reported on. So the message is filtering out there. There was a rally in Center City, Philadelphia, with several hundred. And just recently, there was a rally just outside the city of Philadelphia where they lined Baltimore Pike. This is a large four-lane highway with lots of shopping. And it's a huge residential area, lots of businesses, lots of people living there. And for hours... Thousands of people with homemade signs standing there on the side of the road giving support to those who choose to to serve us, to the good ones, and you couldn't miss it. And and the point is all these people driving by couldn't miss it, and they took that information home, and then they turned on the news, and they went, where's the story? And yet another convert. Uh, Real real quick, um, just to mention... It, it, a question for you, Stephanie, and for you, Dan. And I, I talked to uh, Kelly. He had to uh, go home back in about 15 minutes, and then Joe said uh, he had to go as well. So uh, we thank Joe for for, for coming on. He, he's actually be gone for a bit, and I, he just asked me to uh, send me a message on Facebook uh, to give us uh, goodbyes and you know about it. And his uh, apologies kept to leave earlier on the show, so I want to make sure I got that out. And uh, has either one of you heard about the uh, guy from Ohio? 
who was, uh, I guess, going to try to do some kind of bombing or something of that nature? I have not. Yeah, I saw uh, something about a student. Yeah. I, I saw something about a student who uh, suddenly said, he, he made a threat, and uh, he doesn't sound like a credible person, but, hey, you're going to make a threat, you're going to have to pay for the right. consequences. Yeah, he went to the school district that I'm in. <laughs> that's not a good thing. We've had yep. bomb threats here. Yeah, that's pretty That's close. Well, yeah, he was, was yeah, kid, he's actually uh, from it, uh, a, a township very close to where I live. I mean, he he's actually, uh, he was in a school district. Uh, he came from the, the public school he went to for high school is uh, the same uh, public school uh, in my district. So, see, that's another reason why my daughter's not going to go there. No, but seriously, True. no. Um, but but it, it, it was from uh, from there. Back so when, the, we, no, we were, uh, when we were younger, there were bomb threats all the time. And generally, the response was, of course, there's a bomb threat. There's finals today. And uh, we're just going to ignore it. Now, of course, it really isn't smart to ignore a threat of any kind. But I think we get a little mm-hmm. too hysterical about this also. Um, I, I kind of like the idea uh, of what Israel does. And if, if people think that being armed and self-defending uh, is is unusual, get outside the big cities of, of this country and stay away from the, the university towns. And you'll find that you have almost zero terrorist attacks of any kind. I mean, even even just criminal gangs, they just don't do it. And there's a really good reason why they don't do it. Because if they do it in a gun-free school zone... Well, yeah. If you do that in my area, and you're in the mall, and there's, say, 20, 30 people within 100 feet of you, there's a real good chance that four or five of them are carrying and know how to use it. So it's not going to last long. So I think most of these uh, criminal thugs, whether they're politically motivated or not, are pretty much cowards. No, I'm going to... I'm. I'll agree with you and just make one more comment before I do have to also take off as well because I have work bright and early motivating young people. But um, they are cowards. If you think about who these people are who go after different public places, they pick gun-free zones. And the reason they pick gun-free mm-hmm. zones is they can't handle somebody actually confronting them or somebody proving to be an equal threat. I mean, you don't go to an elementary school and think, I'm going to go here because somebody can reasonably challenge me. You go to an elementary school because you're so small of a person that the only people Mm -hmm. you feel brave handling or encountering are children. So they are absolutely cowards. Non-armed teachers. Right, non-armed teachers, which I think is ridiculous. I think that, you know, these you know, it's not the principal then the, uh, the teacher, someone in that school uh, who is, you know, versed in using a firearm uh, should should have one. It shouldn't be a totally gun-free thing because if some of that nature does happen, again, and it probably will, unfortunately, uh, then there's got to be someone who can step up and protect those children, or someone, I should say, you know, say. Now, there was an idea, and, and Dan, when she goes, we can, we can discuss this idea, you know, where the, this one teacher said that she wanted all of her students uh, to bring an eight ounce an eight ounce can uh, can good in to use that if someone ever entered their room 
the kids can take the cans and throw them at them just so it gives a, a distraction. We could talk about that and, um, later, whether that's a good idea. And they said the reason for that is to give the children a sense of empowerment, uh, you know, that they have something that there's something they could do. Uh, but let's bring it back to you, Stephanie. I really appreciate uh, you staying uh, on the show as long as you have. We really appreciate it, and we definitely like to have uh, yourself uh, back on the show. You know, perhaps next time you come on, we can uh, have uh, Mr. Kirk come on as well. I think uh, the, the audience, I'm sure, I can't speak for, you know, the, the panelists, but I'm sure they'll be uh, thrilled to have him on as well. Absolutely. I will talk to him when I see him, which will actually be soon. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, it would be great to get him on, and then, you know, you have my email. Uh, just send me a message, and uh, we'll schedule time uh, to get him on. Okay, sounds great, and thank Ms. you for Ms. having Conway, me on. Before you go, oh, you I would like yeah. to... I would like to extend my heartfelt gratitude for the work you're doing. There's a lot of different things that people are doing now, and they're all valid to fight for liberty. But as I said earlier, if we don't reach the young generation, even if we take it back now, it's a matter of a few short years before it'll all be gone again. For anything to last at least a generation, maybe two generations before we have to have this fight again, it's going to require the efforts of people like you. So thank you very, very, very much. Well, thank you. The support means a lot. Right, well, take care, and uh, we'll definitely be, uh, you know, keep up and with the doings of uh, Turning Point USA. All right. Sounds great. Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, you're welcome. And definitely check out the uh, Patriot Journalist Network uh, when you got a chance to the hashtag uh, PJNet uh, on Twitter. I will. I think I already followed it, so we're all caught up. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, take care. All right. You as well. Bye-bye. Thank you. Good night. Bye-bye. And, folks, uh, that was uh, Stephanie Conway uh, from Turning Point USA. She uh, is their Texas uh, field organizer. It was uh, great to have her uh, on the show. And yeah, hopefully we can get uh, get her back and perhaps get uh, Charlie Kirk on as well. Uh, as we you know, heard, she said she'll talk to him, see about getting him on, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep it posted and, and see what it as it may. Uh, but as I was saying earlier, Dan, uh, you know we're talking about schools and and having these uh, kids bring in those you know canned goods. You know, if, if nothing else, to give them a sense of uh, empowerment. Uh, what's your thoughts on something like that? Well, if they want empowerment, they can get a toy Nerf gun and feel the same empowerment. I I say that just as uh, you never bring a knife to a gunfight, never bring a can to a gunfight. It's not, what are you going to do, throw cans at the person, piss them off, get, maybe get lucky? Well, that's what they said, uh, that students, they, would, they could throw the can, all the cans at them and then distract them so I guess someone else can, maybe a teacher tackle them or something. Ooh, I, I don't know. They, they spend a lot of time on, tackle the, them. on that Wait story. a minute. Why don't we have the teacher shoot the gun out of their hand? I mean, this is just as, as, as uh, much of a fantasy. In reality, most of the time, the kids are going to be safe because nothing's going to happen. Those rare times, which are very, very difficult, if not impossible to predict, when something does happen, you want to have somebody there who actually knows what to do and is willing to do it, mm -hmm. which means a firearm, and as soon as you're absolutely certain that's what's going on, you aim for center of mass and you start pulling the trigger until that threat is stopped, until they are down and not moving. That's what works. That's the, the plan. And in my school district, as I mentioned uh, on the show before, I think, um, they have authorized special extra training. The state police has given them training 
uh, for a number of teachers, a couple of administrators, and some custodial staff who now are armed at all times on school grounds. And these are people who we already trust with our kids, who have gone through an extra step of vetting, who have had additional training. Uh, I know a couple of them, uh, former police officers, a teacher, a couple of former military, and one of the ladies, she's just awesomely fit and a really good hunter. And I'll tell you what, she's sweet, but she's fierce. And she doesn't like anybody who messes with the kids. She doesn't like it when the kids mess with anybody. She's She never really has to raise her voice because people don't want to see what they know will come out if they if they mess around. Anybody confronts one of those kids, well, may God have mercy on their soul because she's not going to stop until they're down if that's what she's forced to do. And I'll bet you she'd spend the rest of her life having nightmares about it and regretting having to have, make that decision. But sometime you have to make that decision. No, certainly. I mean, and I, and I think that, you know, you should have you know, someone or someones rather. The more more there is, the more protection I think there can be is, is to have someone in there with, and, and of course with the know-how to use a firearm for if that happens, they can, uh, you know, deal with it, uh, I would, you know, hopefully quickly, but, I'll, you know, I would say quickly to do that. Well, sure. And and the point is, if we didn't have these zones where, you know, what was it? Uh, it wasn't Barbara Boxer who's retiring. Thank God. Um, it was the other one from California. <laughs> yeah. Diane Feinstein. She actually said this on the floor of the Senate. And, and, and I've seen the quote so many times, I thought, that's ah, got to be made up. So I looked it up, and sure enough, there's even a YouTube video of it where she said that, uh, you know, hey, if you're confronted with somebody who is armed and you just simply lay down all your weapons, why they'll lay down their weapons and give themselves up. That's just human nature. This is the problem with the progressives at its root, is they either fail to understand human nature or they cynically misrepresent it in order to get us to do something different than what is our natural way of doing things. Most people are naturally not aggressive. They're naturally not interested in harming anybody. They don't enjoy that. They, don't, they try not to do that. There are those people who are twisted for whatever reason, whether it's because they want money or they hate your skin color or they don't like your religion or you drew a, a cartoon of some religious figure that they revere yeah, who want to do harm. And the best defense is, yeah, the best defense in general terms. I mean, yes, you need government to go after the organized criminals that you can actually track and predict and follow, and, and you know they've done it before, they're going to do it again. But um, you can't predict a crazy person. They're, they exist. They're out there. They're, they're thankfully extremely few, but one can do a lot of damage. If a crazy person acts up around you, your job is to do one of three things. If you're completely incapable because of physical or mental or emotional uh, uh, abilities that you have to do anything, uh, run away or duck. And if you are capable of doing something, if you've got what it takes to stand against a foe, then your job, your duty is not to run away, not to duck, but to go after that threat and make certain it's neutralized. Your job is to protect others. That's your job. And, you know, this the idea of uh, everything being a free-for-all where people are going to suddenly uh, not care about anybody else. It's going to be, uh, 
uh, a zombie apocalypse where the ultimate uh, I think there's some breed of libertarianism where they they just like everybody's a sole proprietor complete no look we voluntarily associate all the time we stay with our families we have friends we have neighbors we voluntarily associate for politics for sports for uh, religion for all kinds of things because we want to because we enjoy the company of others because it we get more done I mean when the Amish decide that they're going to put up a barn, they nobody makes them do it. Maybe there's some public, you know, some peer pressure if you don't get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's enlightened self-interest. Even if you really don't want to help people, and most people do, you're going to do it because come a time you're going to need that help yourself, and you want to know mm-hmm. that you can rely on your neighbors. And they get a heck of a lot more done. One person trying to put up one of those solid, incredibly well-built Amish barns that lasts for two, three hundred years with maintenance, um, he could spend ten years if he can do it at all. Um, you get uh, an entire town's worth of people out there and support personnel who are, you know, providing the material and feeding it in and uh, people who are feeding everybody and people who are providing uh, first aid and, and uh, you know, recreational, you know, for when you get too tired. Uh, those, those people accomplish that in an afternoon, in one afternoon. That's all they're, they're sacrificing. Um, voluntary associations are what we do. And the idea that we have to be regulated, we have to be forced that we won't do the right thing unless someone makes us do the right thing and that there's these disinterested experts who actually know better who can tell us what the right thing is. You know, the the great thing about progressivism is that it's had over 100 years of evidence and it doesn't work because it hasn't worked and it's not going to work. And the more they tell us that it's going to work, the more I simply point to where we're at now. And I'll tell you, Stephanie's off the program, but... uh, one really good argument that I use with not just younger people, but it really works with them, is is just to say, look, if what you're saying is true, when you're reading, you know, just uh, spouting that progressive line, if if it's actually true, and you admit that the people who are in charge, the elites, the the Republicans and Democrats who are part of that power elite who make all these rules, if they're progressive and they believe what you believe, and they've had all this time, don't you think they would have fixed anything? They're responsible for that. The war on poverty has been going on since 1966. And here it is yeah, almost awful. almost 50 years later. We have more poor people today, not less. We have less self-reliance, less freedom. And it, we spent billions. The war on drugs, that worked well. Have we won anything <laughs> there? Are less people no. using drugs? No. Yeah, I know this is a, a, a book. I guess I haven't read uh, read it in years uh, by Jeffrey Sachs uh, called "The End of Poverty." It's supposed to have a plan which to uh, you know eliminate po- you know poverty in the world. And one of the things I always uh, pine about or pine about whatever is is you know we can of course we got all the you know what's going on over in Paris and you know Afghanistan and all the wars and things of that nature. And you know I mean, I'm kind of a a futurist, like to see us spending you know. Our money on things such as you know space exploration, things of that nature, and it just you know I opine all the time all the wasted money that we have to spend on just uh, trying to either keep people from trying to you know kill us or unfortunately us having to protect ourselves by you know 
taking the lives of, of others and just how much money and resources is, is just spent on that. It's just, I, I just, I always wonder is what we could, you know, how far we could be as uh, a species as a planet if we could just, you know, not waste so many of our resources in trying to defend ourselves or, or kill other people, you know, kill each well, other first of all, and just you know, put it together for that. I don't believe those resources are being wasted. Waste implies that they're thrown out. Waste is when you've, uh, you're making um, dinner and you cut off the rotten bits and you cut off the ends and you peel off the skin and what you have left, the onion skins and the banana peels, that's waste. And the only way to get anything out of that is to compost it. And, yeah, you get something back, but right. not as much as you put in. All right? I think it's being stolen. It's not wasted. Waste implies carelessness. Theft implies intention. I, I honestly believe that that's what they're doing is they're diverting our money uh, that comes from the people into the pockets of people who they've designated, the status have designated as their pals, their cronies. Like uh, the, there was no waste on any of those solar energy programs that were uh, doomed to failure from the start. There was no waste at all. The government put up billions of dollars of our tax money, gave it to these companies. Then they guaranteed their loans, which is, by the way, another $2 trillion that you can add to the debt in terms of guaranteed loans that have, have already failed and that we're on the hook for. Okay? And these companies hired a few people, did a few photo ops, shipped all the business over to China, fired everybody, paid themselves huge salaries, and went bankrupt, and they're off the hook because we guaranteed their loan. Um, right. That's theft. That's not waste. And it's the same with war. Uh, wars only need to be fought when there are no diplomatic means uh, possible. Now, we don't need to fight wars with France, with England, with Australia. We don't fight a war with Canada. Uh, so far, we haven't fought a war with Mexico. We don't need to fight wars except against people who will not negotiate from a, a place of trust and a place of mutual benefit. Mm -hmm. no, they want everything. So I don't think we can negotiate with the drug cartels. I don't think we can negotiate with the Islamo-fascists. We certainly can't no negotiate with the uh, North Korean leaders because they absolutely have no interest in us getting anything out of the deal. They want everything for nothing. They're thieves. It's intention. And they're willing to use bullying force to get it. Let's face it, the, um, the terrorists have not killed that many people. Every day there are uh, hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a million, I don't know. Uh, Kelly might know the numbers. But there's a lot of people being born every day. And over 10 years, the um, Islamo-fascists, for instance, have killed on the order of tens of thousands and if we include the people who have died in the Syrian civil war, it might be a little bit more than that. That's a terrible tragedy, but it's not even a dent in world population. It's not even a dent in the population in that area. So um, what they're doing is bullying. It's like the this big bully comes up and picks on uh, the little kids. And so he knocks a few little kids down, and they're bloody, and they're bruised, and they're crying. And everybody else goes, oh, shit, don't mess with him. Whereas if we all just stood up to that bully and said, no, what's he going to do? There's 10 of us standing there and we're all as big as him. What's he going to do? 
if he decides he wants to do something, he might just take one or two of us out, which would be bad, but he's going to do it anyway. There's no, there's no way to appease him. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. If, he tra- if he tries that, he's going to find in a very short order that there's no more left for him. We're going to do him in. So I'm not really concerned about um, the idea of appeasing them or the idea of of uh, modifying human nature in some way to, to be better than we are. I like human nature the way it is. We're, we're good, we're bad, we're a mix of things, and most people are not, sure they're self-interested, but they're not interested in hurting anyone else. Leave people alone. Get the government off our backs. The government's not going to solve any of this. You want, you want to know what waste is? Waste is any time you have to put the government in charge of any program. There's a guarantee that it will be wasted. When you see terrible speaking charities of, speaking out there... Of, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, well, and speaking of uh, government in D.C., I uh, got a caller here from 202 uh, area code, uh, which, of, you know, of course, is D.C. Go ahead, 202. This is Agent Smith. As you can see, Mr. Dan Gray, we have had our eyes on you for some time now. It appears you've been living two lives. The first life is Dan Gray. You work for a social service company, you pay your taxes, and you even help your landlady carry out her garbage. And the other life, you get on this talk show known as Bard's Logic. One of these lives has a future. The other does not. We understand you've been contacted by a certain individual, Robert Jeter. Many authorities believe he is the most dangerous man alive. (laughs) My colleagues believe I'm wasting my time with you, but I believe you wish to do the right thing. We want to offer you a deal. Wipe the slate clean. Give you a fresh start. All we ask in return is your cooperation in bringing a known terrorist to justice. Oh, is that it? That's who, you the, who, who is the terrorist? Who is the terrorist? <laughs> That'd be you, Robert. <laughs> known terrorist. Oh, wow. So, that's, so that, how, how you're supposed to respond to that, Dan Gray, is you're supposed to say in a surfer dude voice, well, I got a better deal. How about I give you the finger... And you give me my phone call. Oh, no, I, look, you know, that's the one way to respond. My my response is, uh, you have got nothing that you can offer me that's worthwhile, and bring it on, NSA boy. <laughs> NSA Bob, he has a name. Yeah, well, when Welcome people insult back, me, I, I tend to curse, but we're on the radio, even if it's after dark. Um <laughs> No, I'm not really worried about that. The way I look at it is this. First of all, um, I'm 53, and I've lived an incredibly full life. I'm even astounded myself at the things that I've done. I I still can't believe some of them, and I I was there. Uh, I'm not interested in ending this life anytime soon. I really like living. I'd like to live for a very long time if possible. I'd like to be healthy the whole time. On the other hand, I I have certain conditions and terms that I'm, not willing to accept, and one is to to lie or to cheat or to steal. I, I gave up that sort of behavior. I don't do that, and I'm not willing to. But Mr. Uh, Gray, we have. I'm not willing to live on my knees. 
I'm not willing to accept anyone else living on their knees. And, uh, you know, whatever they do to me, so what? Mr. So what? Gray, you must be reminded you have committed a criminal offense. Lock Our sources indicate you have violated the eighth deadly sin. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Kelly or Agent Agent Bob or whatever, uh, Agent there was nobody Smith. else on the show. In defense of myself, there was nobody else on the show. Somebody had to fill up the airtime. <laughs> oh, by the way, a business note. A business note. I got a uh, direct message on Twitter from a lady who is on, uh, she, she invited me just as the show was starting, and it said, wh- mm-hmm. who's up for a chat? And she invited like, uh, I don't know, 100 people, 18 were already on just as the show was starting, and it was a Patriots journalist video chat. And oh, cool. I, oh, really? I responded, yeah, I said, I'm currently on PJ Net program live, Bard's Logic, Political Talk, our guest Stephanie Conway, et cetera, Turning Point USA. And she just sent in a, a direct message saying, just as the show ended, I just caught it. It says, thanks, awesome show. So we have some more listeners. Well, that's cool. Awesome. Is it, it Conway or Conway? Yeah. Well, no, Stephanie Conway is the uh, the person, obviously, that was on the show. Uh, the is woman Con- goes Con- by the Con- handle Con- of... Con- no, it's uh, Conway, right? Yeah, the, it was uh, Stephanie the Conway. Yeah, the woman on okay. Twitter goes by the handle of American Lady Forty Nine, and her her uh, avatar is Casper the Friendly Ghost, which oh, I don't know oh, if that means anything. Yeah, I, I was like Casper; he's pretty cool. Yeah, just a Casper fan. And he was always standing well, up awesome. to bullies. They were always picking on him. Oh, well, I kind of like him about as much as I like the Smurfs, and I can't believe. You know, I'm standing there in Walmart, going to buy a video of my son and I or something, and we got uh, the Christmas candle, which is a good Christmas thing. Anyway, he wanted to get the Smurfs. I'm, I'm like, standing there looking at the Smurfs. No, no, please don't get the Smurfs. No, please. Can we get the Smurfs, Dad? <laughs> ah! <laughs> oh, wow. You know, there you go. There's a way you can reach people, too. You can say, you know what? The status are like Gargamel, and <laughs> and the founders of this country are like Papa Smurf. Huh. Or you could say the status are like uh, Sauron and the founders are like Gandalf. I mean, there's, hmm, this is fiction, I'm telling you. It, it works because, look, they don't pay attention to politics. I get that. But, I mean, we're not meant to. They make it as deliberately boring and, and uh, painful as possible. But oh, oh, by the they way, read these by the stories. Way. What? But by the way, um, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, all that stuff. You know who the King of the Elves was? Who the King of the Elves was? You didn't play well, King of the Elves. Well, there, there was the it King was, in. Uh, you're talking about uh, what's his face? Lord of the Rings. Father, uh, yeah, yeah. Lord oh, of the Rings. Gosh. That guy. He was the King of the Elves. You know who it was? The actor or the? It was Agent <laughs> Smith. Oh! 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 And I was in a theater, and like I pointed that out when he turned around. Oh my gosh, it's Agent Smith! A bunch of people started laughing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he wasn't the king. He wasn't the king. Or whatever he was. Yeah, it was the same guy. Yeah, it was like, well, you know, actually, to go from 
uh, I, I think he's a good actor to go, to go from a, you know, like Rocky Balboa, okay, what does he do? Sylvester Stallone. Same old movies, he doesn't diversify. Um, I want to see him in this, a movie um, that is perfectly apropos to the liberty movement and the corruption that this country is facing. He did a movie that was critically acclaimed, very few people saw it, called Copland. And it was a story of a small town in New Jersey where all these New York City cops who were incredibly corrupt had their home. So they were that was their bedroom community. And for their own security, they hired a cop who was just definitely not even second rate. He was Sylvester Stallone, and he played himself fat and lazy and a little bit stupid. But... Some of the corruption bled over from New York City into this small town. And Sylvester Stallone, as the law enforcement officer there, tried, he discovered it and tried to do the right thing. And they, they warned him and they tried to shut him down. And he did the right thing. And you see the rest of the movie yourselves. I'm sure it's available somewhere. It was really, really good. And it wasn't the normal Stallone stuff. As far as the actor himself, he's an idiot. He, he actually, he's another one who says, uh, you know, you know, I use guns all the time in these movies, but, uh, you know, w- w- the Second Amendment's no good no more. We've got to get rid of that. Well, what I like about... Like, you know, what you say? Well, he said, like him, Dan. That was impressive. That was impressive. Well, hold on, I can't let guy get this out. Okay. That was do impressive, it again. Do it again. Let's hear it. Right. <laughs> do, do, Adrian, will you marry me? Or what you doing the rest Yo, of your life? Yo, Adrian. What you doing the rest of your life? All right. <laughs> My brother would do him all the time. Anyway... So Hugo Weaving is a very good, diverse actor to go from The Matrix to The Lord of the Rings. Did it's you know that deep. name, or did you just look him up? Uh, I looked him up here on my friend <laughs> who's standing next to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, are, what are you doing there, Kelly? Are you oh, V for Vendetta. Sort of, uh... V for Vendetta, too. He was in V for Vendetta. Yeah. He was the V yeah. guy. Yeah. Oh, was he? Oh, yeah? What, what? Yeah. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Kelly, what are you, play doing? Who? Are, you, are you doing some sort of uh, secret science project tonight or something? Yeah, yeah, mad scientist work. Yeah, prototype number seven. Is that associated with your gold mine or? Yeah, it is. It's a gold extraction thing. Cool. Yeah, so, yeah, and by the way, I have on this plywood board. I said, I'm, I'm calling the system Langton. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And then the other system, there's two systems. The other system's called Runnymede. Now, please tell me, you know what Runnymede is? Well, I, I like my leg, my eggs kind of Runnymede. Meat, <laughs> oh, some honey, right? <laughs> well, I, I know. All right, it's 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 um it's outside of uh, London. Um, uh, oh, getting closer, getting closer, getting closer. What does it mean? Wait a minute, wait a minute. I know what it next, means. Next to the it, Thames, uh, next to the Thames River. What happened there? It means well. That's so where close. they signed the mod- they they sealed the Magna Carta. But it means something. Hold on, Runny Mead is a it's like a a water marsh or something like that. I think that's Anglo-Saxon. Be, let me look it up. Hold on. You you won't find water the meadow. It's a water no. meadow. No. That's what it means. No. And the actual place is it's a water meadow alongside the Thames in no. Surrey, 20 miles west of central London, where they sealed the Magna Carta. That's, that's, that's propaganda. Runny Mead oh. is Anglo-Saxon for 
regular meeting at the meadow. It was the last regular meeting at the meadow when they sealed the Magna Carta because the barons of England would meet at the meadow and say, we would, what are we going to do with this tyrant king? He's overtaxing us. He also uh, basically deeded over everything in England over to the Pope. But somebody pointed that out and gave me a reference. I was stunned. That's why they went to war. They can handle the taxes, but when he went to, uh, here, Pope, here's everybody and all the possessions and the land. They, they're like strap-on swords. But running me Anglo-Saxon, regular meeting at the meadow, what happened was it was a tea party before the tea party was a tea party. They were coming up with a plan, and Langton was there. And then they did the last running meet until the Magna Carta. But it's actually, the root is Anglo-Saxon for regular meeting at the meadow. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's meadow is mead, but yeah. running isn't regular meeting. Uh, running meeting? Well, Anglo-Saxon is, I mean, the whole English language is a fascinating study. Um, well, that's basically uh, that's basically um, uh, it, it's German or Germanic in its root. That one, it's not Latin or Greek. It's a mix between the the Wolves, even the Vikings, the French, the Normans. Um, absolutely fascinating, and the reason why they had to write the, the Magna Carta in Latin is because the English language just really wasn't even there well enough. It was. There's Old English, Middle English in the 1600s, and then Modern English now. But it, the whole language was just absolutely fascinating. Um, Beowulf is a classic Old English. We could hardly even read it. If we went back a thousand years to England, we would barely be able to understand them. I mean, we'd have a better chance learning French than English. It, it was that bad. And then. Well, that's um, that's great about English even today is the fact that it is a, a polyglot bastard language that continues to add new words. Uh, I, I saw some people who were commenting despairingly that they've added these these words like selfie to the English language. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> right, no, that's exactly, no, but that's right. exactly what English is supposed to do. We take words from everywhere. You know, chutzpah, mm-hmm. uh, bagel. Uh, uh, Parliament is French. Right, exactly. <laughs> we take the words from everywhere, and then we make up words ourselves. And and you know what? The the absolute test of whether a word is a true English word or not is not whether or not some some academy like they have in France decides that this is acceptable or this is not acceptable. You will say this or not. No, it's whether people use it. And people say this stuff. <laughs> right. You know what's really fun? Go back and watch some of the uh, '40s movies and look at the slang. I mean, it's just awesome. They had their own slang back then. The, the, and phrases that stuck, that people continue to enjoy, have stayed in the language. And the others become archaic. They're still useful, though. Yeah, like the cast. Okay, here's one. Maybe this was back in the 40s, or, or maybe somewhere in the 40s or 50s. What does the word pins mean? Pole? She has nice What's pins. the word? Pins, P-I-N-S. Oh, legs. P-I-N-S. Yep. Legs. Yep. And, or you could, also legs. Say, <laughs> you could also say great gams. Gams. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Sure. So here, here's something that's stunning to our country from the English language. So in 1604, a man wrote a dictionary. 
oh boy, who'd want to do that? How boring. No, he 2,500 words, 1610, the King James Bible came out, 1620, Massachusetts Colony was established. Why? They got a hold of the Bible. Like, oh my gosh, what? It's not in Latin. I don't read Latin. I don't know what Latin is. Latin, Latin was very precise, by the way. But what? This is in the vernacular? Oh my gosh, this is stunning. We got to... So the um, pilgrims came over because they wanted to worship God the way they wanted to and not what the state dictated to them. They wanted to be free for the purpose of religion, how they felt, and how they believed, not what someone priest is going to dictate in Latin. And so that the, the language came along, 1604 Dictionary, 1610 King James Bible, and then 1620 Massachusetts. And that concept of liberty, you know, to worship led to other liberties, which eventually found in the First Amendment, and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's absolutely stunning what the chain of events, if you will, that happened. Because they hadn't discovered the Bible in their own language, they probably would have never come over here until, who knows, you know, mid, late, late 1600s, who knows. But it was... That dictionary, boring as it can be, it affected the world. Oh, absolutely. And so did Gutenberg's printing press, et cetera. But you kind of lost me. I went into a, a, a mental reverie for just a moment uh, when you said vernacular. Because I, I was, have you ever seen Order Disorder in the Court with, uh, it's a Three Stooges yes. episode? Yes, that is so funny. So ignorant. Yeah. So ignorant. <laughs> So he's Curly is on the stand giving testimony in a murder trial, and he's uh, using all kinds of really slang jazz musicians terms from the 30s. And the the judge says, uh, "Drop the vernacular." And Curly looks offended. He's holding his hat, and he says, "Oh my god, it's not what it's a derby. <laughs> it's a derby." Is it this hat or something? Or Yeah, it's derby hat. Derby hat. Really, that, that is my absolute favorite. Three Stooges. It's so funny. I thought you'd know that one. I was a, Certainly, Judgy Wedgie. I'm sorry? <laughs> Certainly, Judgy Wedgie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never oh, found that funny. Tonight. Well, yeah, we're really, really, yeah, really going off the deep end. Yeah, we are. That's That's fine. Okay. I'll tell you what, you have. Well, we only have a few minutes left anyway. It's, it's literally less than uh, 50 yeah. minutes. we got to go ahead and just start uh, closing things out. So uh, go ahead, Dan. Let's go ahead and get uh, uh, your well, closing I, comments, and then Kelly, then I'll have to shut things down for the night anyway. So I'm always trying to be um, as eloquent as possible, as deep and meaningful as possible, leaving people with you know great thoughts, and I hear all this silence, which convinces me they're asleep, but they assure me that they're just thinking deeply about what I've told them. Humor. What was that? <laughs> Humor. Funnies. Laughing. This is the best thing. Tonight, after our meeting had finished the organizational part, and we'd, we'd, we'd accomplished all the main stuff that we had set out as an agenda and explored the, the likely ramifications and done all that business, we sat around and we were on Bard's Logic After Dark. We shot the shit. We talked about stuff. We talked about people and things and events, and there was quite a lot of laughter going on. And I'll tell you, that's why people keep coming back. We have this bonding 
where we're laughing at the same things, and we're laughing at each other. We're laughing at ourselves. And we're really laughing at those people who are trying to mess us up and not getting away with it because we got the goods on them. They're not fooling us anymore. So if there's anybody out there who is a genius of comedy, that's something that's really, really lacking lately. I mean, there's been some, but, um, you know, back when George Carlin was doing his thing, the thing I really respected, because I didn't agree with everything he said, was the fact that he skewered both sides equally. And right now, you got these comics in the mainstream Hollywood uh, establishment and New York establishment, and they are happy to go after Republicans and defend Democrats, but they don't talk about statists versus liberty. They don't talk about that. They, they won't even go near that sort of topic. They won't say anything bad about Obama. Oh, he's got big ears. He likes to go on vacation. No, there's so much good stuff there that you, you could mine as a comedic uh, talent. And there's people out there who have that gift. They should be doing this. And, and you know what? Once you realize the emperor has no clothes, you know, once people realize that the status, the only money they have is pieces of paper that say they own stuff. The only power they have is if we follow their orders. Think about it. You, you've got a, a mayor where you live or somebody like that. You've got a governor. Uh, we've got a president. What can they do to you? Unless somebody follows their orders, what can they do? If, if the president of the United States, no matter who that person is, says, you, I want you to do this, you must not do that, and you just say, that's nice. Everybody's got an opinion, just like everybody's got another certain anatomical feature. Good for you. What's he going to do? If, if he can't convince somebody to follow that order to arrest you or do something else, we don't care what he has to say. The only reason we should be following anybody is if we respect them because they have our best interests at heart and they prove it every single day. And if they fail, and most people will, or if they falter, you can give them a pass if it's not too big, but not too many passes. And if it is big, out they go. They're all replaceable. We haven't gotten anybody yet who is the irreplaceable man, that George Washington, that person who absolutely must be the one. And the only reason he was the irreplaceable man is because he had the kind of character to lead us through that great crisis and then to walk away from power three times. I want to see some of these people walking away willingly from power. And I don't just mean I'm not running for office. I mean walk away from power. They, they, they get um, thrown out on an election or they realize they're not going to win and they don't run. And what's the next thing you hear from them? Our lieutenant governor, a guy who I like personally, Jim Colley, he's a nice fella. Um, he didn't get reelected along with our governor, the only Republican governor around who didn't get reelected because they failed to keep their word to the conservatives in this state, so we got rid of them. And Jim just got appointed director of the United Way. Yay, Jim. He's been in politics since he was 23 years old. Okay? Wow. Come on. Do we, is he irreplaceable? Is he really out of power? Every single time you turn around, what are they doing as soon as they're not in? They're a lobbyist. What are they doing? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, yeah, they're on the board of some corporation. Screw these people. They're nobody special. They're no better than you or me. With that, I'll have to bring that over to you, Kelly. Thanks, Dan. Kelly. Okay. Yeah, Kelly did. Uh, yes, he did send me a message that they maybe had some uh, technical difficulties. Is he still there? Uh, I, I still see him. 
But uh, you still there, Kelly? No? I think he's working on a flux uh, capacitor. Yeah, that may be uh, something of that nature. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll go ahead and uh, say some final thoughts uh, myself, and then unfortunately uh, we'll have to go. But I'll tell you what, it was a quick night tonight. (laughs) Time just uh, certainly flew, and we were, you know, working on some things uh, for the coming weeks. Uh, I believe your friend's coming on on the 28th, uh, this um, next uh, Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that. And I'm still waiting for to hear from uh, some other folks on, on whether they'll make it back. One of the people I'm trying to get a hold of is a Kelly Parisi, and she is uh, someone from the Girl Scouts organization. Uh, we want to talk uh, about some things there. If we can uh, get uh, in contact with her on the show, uh, I believe she's a communi- the national communications director of the Girl Scouts. Uh, so we're, we're working on uh, getting her here on the show hopefully sometime soon. Uh, and some other folks uh, that we'll be looking to bring on as well. But definitely, folks, uh, take a, check out the Patriot Journalist Network at www.patriotjournals.com, as uh, you brought up earlier tonight, uh, Dan. And, of course, we want to thank Stephanie Conway of Turning Point USA. And check them out at turningpointusa.net. And uh, check out the grassroots organization they have uh, for the younger uh, folks, but uh, looks like I've seen their website. Looks like they got some interesting things there uh, worth uh, checking out. And so, of course, uh, we'll see everyone next week here at 10 p.m. Eastern Time uh, for our next episode of Bard's Logic Political Talk. But until then, take care, have a good night, and I will end this evening as I do every evening, and that is with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. Uh, by going to her site at www.aubreyashburn.com. You can hear more of her music. So take care, folks, and good night. Good night, Bob. Good night, Dan. Mm-hmm.